0: We don't even have a cold open this time,
1: Josh. Or do we? I mean, there was the part where we were complaining about the episodes, but I do think that maybe that's a bad cold open. We'll find something. We'll find a cold open.
0: We'll find something. Yeah. Listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, that's the cold open. Yeah,
1: there you go. I really appreciate it. I'm like, that Graham. No part of the Buffalo goes to waste.
0: Hello, what Jeff just said something hilarious that is not going to appear because of the way we edit this, but I'm completely <laughs> thrown by it. Normally I would say welcome to Baxter Building episode 17. I would introduce myself as Gray McMillan and introduce my co-host. Or rather, give him a hand so that he could introduce himself by saying and my co-host is Jeff Lester, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Jeff is much more positive than either of us feel about these <laughs> issues. Let's just let's just put that out there right now. Okay. I will say something, though, Graham, before we get see, in there. Say it. Say it. I, 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 thank you. I shall. Say it, Jeff. Which
1: is the... won't hey,
0: be put off, Jeff. Say it. Oh, man, Graham.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that in this batch is, uh, is, is kind of a... Not exactly what one would think of as a, as a bumper crop, except... Okay. It has, it, there are issues in here that I think are probably among my favorites. There's, there's two issues in particular where I'm like, this is fucking great.
0: What is hilarious is as I was struggling to get through these issues, which mm-hmm. I've shared with you before, Jeff, and now I'm sharing with listeners, I struggled to get through these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it actually did occur to me that very often in this podcast, I've said, just wait until Kirby goes, it goes really downhill. Mm-hmm. And you have said, no, 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 no. There's a period where Jerry Conway's writing, and it's great. We are firmly in the Jerry Conway period for these issues. Yes. And I've got to tell you, if this is your definition of great, we have to have words. <laughs> because these are uh, – some of them aren't even fine, Jeff. <laughs> some of these are, are just not very good comic books. Well, uh I, – I'd also – If your two issues are the two issues, I think they are.
1: Oh yeah, they are.
0: Um, They uh, are. They are. I I should tell you, listeners, we are going to be covering issues one thirty-four through one forty-six of the uh, Marvel comic series Fantastic Four. Apparently, it's the world's greatest comic magazine, according to its banner. That is, you could—if this was Britain, you could sue them for false advertising. (laughs) Because if this is the world's greatest comic magazine, every other comic magazine in the time was really having a bad, bad period. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: you know, it's it's kind of interesting. One of the things that I've noticed um, – well, one thing is is we are very firmly in the era of these are books that I read that I had oh, as yes. a kid when yes. they originally came out. Like I, uh, more than half of these I actually had. But <clears> – <throat> Uh, And I think one of the things that I found as I get older and I start dipping back into stuff that, you know, I knew as a kid (coughs) and loved and appreciated, um, I I think that, you know, one of the things that's so great about Steve Englehart's Avengers is, is that it may be one of those books that when I reread it, it is kind of more or less the same as I remember it and still pretty awesome. You know, like, even if it's not,
0: uh... <laughs> Are you trying to come up with a way of saying that Jerry Conway stories are worse when you revisit them now? No, I because because honestly, there's stuff
1: I've thanks to the miracle of buying stuff on BOGO sales and Comicsology and Marvel Unlimited, I've spent a lot of certain amount of time revisiting stuff that I adored as a kid. And a, a prime example of this is like a, a couple of months ago, I reread uh, Chris Claremont and John Byrne's Iron Fist. Haven't actually gotten to the 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 Marvel team up two part tie off to, to the, the finale of what, where they're going with it. But I actually read all these issues and there's chunks of them. Well, I actually read all of iron fist, all the Marvel premiere stuff, which I'd only read somewhat spottily and then Claremont and then Claremont and Byrne, And, uh, and I just find that, um, Oh, uh that when I've revisited, oh, and when I first got the GIT discs, one of the first things I did was I loaded up a bunch of Spider-Man issues from, say, about 120 on through like about 180. So, you know, Jerry Conway's run, which ends in like 150. And what I found is, is that as a kid, there is stuff that you're reading and you sort of know that it's over your head. Plus when you're reading things, then as a kid, I would miss issues and your imagination fills in a lot of stuff that is not that when you reread it as an adult, you see that it's not there, you know, like there's a lot of, um, One of the things that struck me over in Spider-Man, for example, which Conway was writing, is as Gwen Stacy dies, Peter Parker is a fucking wreck. Um, And then Mary Jane is basically there for him, and they grow to become friends. He relies on her, and they become lovers, basically. And the scene where they kiss is really just one of those great—I still maintain it's one of the great sequences in in Marvel's 70s comics— But rereading that stuff uh, was kind of a weird experience in seeing how much stuff my kid brain put on the page. Like, uh, you know, like there's lots of scenes of Peter Parker and Mary Jane more or less having the same scene over and over and over again until you get to that romantic scene. And it changes a little bit. You'll get little bits and pieces, sort of, but not much. And it's kind of the same thing with... um, in Iron Fist, Danny Knight, Danny Rand and Misty Knight end up starting a romantic relationship. And you, as a kid, I totally shipped them, to use the uh, uh, you know term that we use now. I was like, yeah, they're the best couple. They're totally there for each other. They totally get each other. And then when I reread it, I'm like, that is in no way dramatized at all. But what happens is you get Chris Claremont put thought balloons in their head, being like, Oh, she totally gets me. I totally get what's going on you you know it's it, it it they
0: tell you, and then I guess because you're a kid, you just sort of you internalize it you yeah, you, 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 you believe- you believe that like it's actually errant as opposed to just right expositionary. Yeah, yeah, because and, and in part because it's literally nothing that I
1: had ever experienced at all. You know, it's like there's no concept. It's true. But it's... When
0: you're when you're seven, yeah, and someone is like, "This person gets me as a person, and they're always there for me, and I can always rely on them romantically." Yeah, you you have no idea of what it is. Yeah, so you're like, I guess that's what it's like. Well, yeah, exactly. There's a there's a lot of
1: when you're seven or eight, like love only exists as a speech act. You know what I mean? Like you're sort of I mean, you get the sense you might love your parents or you might love your dog or you might, you know, have a crush on that person at school. But you can't really sort of sort that out. And meanwhile, what you're looking at everywhere, especially in the 70s, pop music is like talking about love. TV shows, people are going on and on about love. And even in the comic books every once in a while in this private place, you kind of get a chance to see superheroes in love. And and a lot of it is just declarative statements. So for myself, one of the things that I remember about this is, you know, as a kid is the idea that that Conway is trying to changed the idea of the Fantastic Four. And the idea is is that they are a family, but there's very much a very conscious idea of them being a dysfunctional family. You know? Mm-hmm. and And so, at the time, sort of the way that your head fills in some of this stuff, seeing Reed and Sue on the rocks, and also more importantly, seeing Reed be very different. Like, he... And and some of the most enjoyable parts of these issues are kind of the weird parts where Reed is kind of like, well, nothing we can do. Let's just go home. And everyone's like, what the fuck's up with Reed? Jesus Christ, this guy's a fucking mess. And and But it never really goes far enough at all, you know? And so there's a lot of stuff that's really kind of being sketched in on the sides that as a kid felt really deep, revisiting it and also having like to get to see the two issues that I missed. So there was like two months where I was just reading the same comic over and over again. And then I would get to the next issue. There'd be this jump. It seemed like things had changed or moved or progressed. You know, I mean, we're going to hit a couple of scenes here that I'm like are, are really in their own way, ballsy as shit. And yet the real problem is, is with all these issues is Conway is, writing way 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 too fast the stuff is not even the stuff that he's intending to land on the page is either barely there at all and then he has to oversell it but frankly the stories themselves are just kind of wet toilet paper stuff forms (laughs) happens and then resolves and you're like what is the fucking point of that plus all of these issues well i don't know about all of them but there's a real creeping um what I think of what I started thinking of while we were reading this as Star Trek syndrome, you know, where it's like half these episodes read like someone had just watched an episode of Star Trek like the night before. And was, well,
0: the the issues that you are going to be in defense of in particular feel like a Star Trek plot. Oh my god. The issues that I am going to be in defense of feel like every Star Trek plot jammed together at once,
1: which is awesome.
0: <laughs> Let's, let's jump into the issues. Let's let's. Because there's, there's things you're saying that remind me of, of specific thoughts I had while reading them. Yes. But I kind of want to go, go through the issues themselves. Yeah, I agree. The first couple of issues that we're dealing with, yeah. the first storyline is uh, 134 through 135, a dragon stalks the skies, exclamation point, and the Eternity Machine. Yeah. Situation. Um, one of the things that really came through in these 13 issues for me, mm-hmm. which is pretty much Conway's like opening salvo, because yes. he, he wrote the previous issue, but th- that was from a right Thomas plot, mm-hmm. is um, Conway loves going back to the earlier stuff in Fantastic Four and bringing back some random characters who, let's be honest, don't really deserve to come back. Oh,
1: yeah. It's the worst version of worst type of deep cuts ever. Yeah. It
0: really, I mean, it really genuinely is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these two issues bring back Gregory Gideon. Do you remember Gregory Gideon, everyone? Probably I, not. I
1: have to say, I literally didn't, Graham. I literally really? went back I, and read. We did. reread all these. I read. I'm like, son of a bitch. I, I The, must one, have, I,
0: yeah. the mm-hmm. one I didn't remember is the Miracle Man later. Oh, see, I totally was, remember Miracle Man. Anyway, Gideon Graves is back, you guys. That's, he's the, he's the rich dude that you've been dreaming of for for a hundred issues. Who's Gideon Grave? Because that's that's Gideon, what you just Gideon, said. That's Gregory Gideon. It's Gregory Gideon. Who? Have I just invented a new bad
1: guy? You may have, or he already exists. But you were like, who is, is
0: Gideon the, is Graves? The, I'm like, that sounds wait, familiar. Wait, is, is he the bad guy from Skullpiller <laughs> Crew? He is. <laughs> I've just Googled it. Oh, oh my God. Oh, that is the you best. Me. Uh, I mean Gregory Gideon, not – although if it was Gideon Graves, this would be a much better story. Oh, man. It would be so great <laughs> in its way. Anyway, uh, Gregory Gideon is – people really genuinely will not remember – the businessman who basically tries to put the Fantastic Four out of business because he was rich and a dick. That was his entire – motivation yeah.
1: fantastic for issue 34 if you wanted to
0: return and revisit it which i i, I do love that uh, he is brought back 100 issues later mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> right yeah i find that really really funny for some reason he comes back with a whole new motivation the motivation being that after he made up with his wife and his son in issue 34 they then took off on a plane for happier climbs only to get caught in an atomic bomb blast. Yeah. (laughs) What? Um, And now the the wife is dead. Gideon is existing in a incredibly Buscema Sinet-esque techno suit.
1: Oh, my God. Graham, you totally – you didn't describe it right. You're like, because of his wife's death and the the radiation-related illnesses that both he and Thomas have – Thomas Gideon. His, his, yeah, his son. Yes, exactly. Gideon has to cosplay as a steampunk uh teapot with purple <laughs> depends.
0: It is it's, the best. It's, it's great that he is in a golden armor with the exception of his pants. I'm yeah. I'm saying pants in the British sense, mm-hmm. meaning his underwear, which is purple. Yeah. Um what it reminded me of actually was the Busema uh design for Madrox the Multiple Man. Interesting. It which tem- comes around from, I think, Giant Size Fantastic Four 4. Hmm. I, I might be fudging that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but it, but it's, it's a weird, overly complicated, almost Jim Lee-esque, overly complicated uh, robot armor. It's interesting. It's-
1: I thought it was a uh, different Jim. It seemed very starenko y to me. It seemed very Steranko-esque for some reason.
0: I, I can kind of see that. Anyway, so he his entire thing this time is he's now going to kidnap the Fantastic Four because he has decided I, – I I still don't think the story actually establishes how he came to this conclusion other than the plots told him to. Mm-hmm. But he decided that if he can siphon off the cosmic rays of the Fantastic Four, he will be cured of the radiation poisoning that is killing him and his son. Yes. To do this, he uh, brings in an, another old Fantastic Four thread, the Dragon Man,
2: mm-hmm.
0: who he is now controlling. Uh, and he actually starts by kidnapping Sue and Franklin, then going after the remainder of the Fantastic Four. That's, that's essentially the plot of the two issues. Uh, unsurprisingly, you guys, it doesn't go well for Gideon. He ends up dying because of the Dragon Man.
1: Yes. Yeah, in theory, both he and the Dragon Man just sort of wipe each other out because he's been controlling the Dragon Man, but then, of course, he's not. And then,
0: uh... yeah, it's... Uh... I, 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 there's only two or three pages left, so they've got to have a fight, and then there's an explosion. The end. Yeah, that which is,
1: which is a lot of Conway. I think Conway's got a lot of... Uh... Well, let's put it this way. Definitely, there's the point where the FF Crashing their fantastic car or the fantastic car or whatever jet they're in being shot out of the sky. I thought that that was a a cliche that Chris Claremont had really managed to to make his own uh, in Uncanny X-Men. But holy shit, the Fantastic Four cannot fly a fucking thing in these all these issues that we are literally the the stuff goes up
0: and then it comes down. There is so much crashing to to be fair. That is the way these things work generally. Oh, like, uh, e- even if they're working, they go up and they come down. Sure,
1: Graham. Well, th- yes, thank you, Mister Pedantic. I, I do. Hey, <laughs> Mister Fantastic and Mister Pedantic, that's interesting. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there is kind of a there is a lot of. I I read some of this being like, what does what does Jerry Conway really care about? Because in a way, it, I it's got the. It really starts moving into the realm of, despite all the um, stuff, the laudatory things that I said about Jerry Conway. I also <laughs> have these periods where I'm like, or is he just sort of cranking it out for the check? Because there is a yes, lot I of, yes. <laughs> I I feel like there are a a lot of the very very dismissive comments that people of which I feel like John Byrne is the most notable and most insane. Uh, um, exam- exemplar of someone who complains about uh, the Marvel, about comic book fans becoming comic book writers and essentially telling stories that serve no real purpose apart from just sort of regurgitating what they've read.
0: Well, th- th- that actually is a pretty good descriptor of these Fantastic Four issues, to be yeah. perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, it- to the point where... With the exception of maybe one of the seven stories we're going to talk about, they're all rehashes. They're all characters who who uh, we have seen before coming back. Actually, coming back also for revenge. One of the other things I thought of reading all these issues together is the Fantastic Four are literally the worst enemies. Because the number of people who come back to get revenge on the Fantastic Four yeah. and are otherwise not looking to cause trouble at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really it, – I mean, there's a run of them in these issues. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and the other thing that's really sad is we look at, you know, by comparison, if you pick pick Kirby, the Lee Kirby issues, any issue, any run of this many issues, even the stuff where it's largely kind of rehash, Kirby almost can't help but throw in new characters. And I feel like out of all of this, everything that we come across, there's really only just... Going to be when we get to talk about the Doctor Doom storyline and Dark Darkoth. That's it. And when you go back to basically work in maybe Thundra
0: and well, arguably Omega, you know. Well, you are you are actually missing the two issues that you love so much, which we'll come to. Which yeah, are, we'll uh, come to theoretically all new stuff, but also. Eh. Yeah, it's it's well, you you know what I'm saying. Like they are new characters, but let, there's little new about that story. Let let's get there. Let let's get there because cause it is. I mean, in a way, there's a bit of
1: uh, a fudgery that I I yeah, admit to on there, my there, own end. But
0: yeah, yeah. but there it is. I mean, this is the beginning of a particular era of the Fantastic Four that actually gets much worse when Rich Buckler comes on as artist, and Rich Buckler comes on with his book of Kirby swipes. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've joked before about this being the the cover band here of Fantastic Four. Yeah. But oh my god, it really is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is to say that there's nothing enjoyable about these issues. 134 in particular has the scene that I mentioned last episode that I love so much, which is Johnny goes to look up his old girlfriend mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's married with kids. And he is horrified. It's a great scene, is not it? I love it. Because yeah. she's what I actually really love about it is. She is completely cool. Yes. She's like, I got married, had kids. Yeah. It's been a few years, Johnny. And Johnny is utterly horrified. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is such a, a problem for his ego. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That well, that his ex girlfriend now has three kids and is married. That he literally runs away. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I I do dig that. And I do dig. I actually really enjoy the fact again, this is that's That sort of Conway at kind of his his best, and again, as it sort of struck me as a kid, is this idea that that Johnny's dealing with the idea. And I feel like this is, um, I guess we're, you know, this is going to destroy the drama of it. But when Wyatt Wingfoot returns in a couple of issues and he's ready to graduate from college and Johnny is really aware that he has kind of done nothing with his life.
0: Yes, and it, it, it there's, there's a lot of in really subtle characterization going mm-hmm. on here which almost feels not at odds with everything else that's going on but it, I wish there had been more space for the character stuff. Yes, I'd less space spent on the the superheroing yeah. for Yeah, for yeah video. no, absolutely. Even the, because Conway, for all his faults, and I am much less forgiving for these issues than you are,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, but for all his faults, Conway is really good at coming up with inner lives for these characters. Yes. So Sue leaves, and it's not just, because you get the feeling that if Lee had written Sue leaving, or Thomas for that matter, they would have cut to her being alone
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know, having anxious and thoughts. And instead, no, Sue goes to stay with friends, mm-hmm. and she's got this whole other life has mm-hmm. never been hinted at before. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate the idea that, like Sue, has moved on to an extent as much as she hasn't. Like, there's something new to Sue when we see her again.
1: Yes, I agree. No, Sue is definitely it. It is that idea, and 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 that is actually one of the parts that is great. Is is that this whole this riff happens between Sue and Reed, and and it's Reed who's the one who seems trapped. In his former life, and can't really figure out why, what, what else to do, or how, where else to go. I guess you know he's the one who's lost. Sue isn't. That being said, unfortunately, the Sue scenes are so marred by the weird way they handle Franklin in the these stories. There's like an ongoing subplot that builds to uh, a a a boiling point in issue i guess 141 i think in which franklin begins having freakouts like there's a scene where he like starts shrieking for no reason uh there's scenes where he like they talk about him like losing consciousness or he slips into catatonia but the fact is the kid is utterly catatonic every time we see him like i do not know what the decision on that was i think Maybe part of that was literally them being unsure how
0: old to make Franklin, but – Which is really strange because one of the things that is commented on multiple times in these issues is the Fantastic Four is still on a real-life timeline.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: So so Franklin is at this point exactly as old as however many years ago he was born. Right. Which is – how many years now? He's got to be four, right? So five, something
1: maybe? like that. Four or five years old. Yeah.
0: So As visually, he looks four or five. Yeah, exactly. But but there is there is no character to Franklin. Yeah. Franklin is a prop in these issues. It, and it's one of the
1: things that again is very strange because uh, you know at the risk of of being really super insensitive, uh, you know there is um, a a lot of people have talked about the reading of you know, read as being sort of somewhere on the, the spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. and honestly, this really does the idea of Franklin as uh, a potentially very autistic kid sort of kind of makes sense in a reading that, you know, they weren't, really, they didn't intend. They yeah. weren't, they did not intend. They absolutely didn't. And so, consequently there's just a weird um there's just this weird failure in the middle of the stuff with sue and franklin and it also kind of extends a little bit in that regard to to the scenes with sue and reed that we end up seeing as a result which is which is a shame but yeah no the the thing with johnny you kind of get the idea that conway's going one way and then Eventually, it looks like it may just be a swerve and we're going to go back to the same old track of the Johnny Storm record, which is wah, wah, crystal, wah, wah. But there, there's really such a, I don't know, it's tough. Conway... Really had these ambitions that he just cannot manage to squeeze in with everything else. And I don't know how much he's really vested in everything else, considering how many of these episodes issues the big action scene that opens the book is the fucking FF have their vehicle crash on them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Again, like the number of times in just this one little run is like, uh, is this really, are you just not into this? Or who's not into, I don't know, what's basically happening here? So
0: so the end of the plot is, as we said, uh, Gideon and Dragon Man both zonk each other out. At the end of the actual story, the epilogue, as they announce, even though it is kind of the end of the, the story, is that all of the Fantastic Four and Sue are awake with the exception of Reed, and that Sue would rather leave Reed sleeping, yeah, and asks the rest of the team so to, to not tell them that she tell him that she was there right she 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 finds it too painful yeah to be there, extending the they have split up subplot, which going back to what we were saying before has really interesting moments and has a lot of potential mm-hmm. but given that we read thirteen issues for this. Mm-hmm. Is also the slowest subplot in the world. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah I well, mean, right. I- imagine you are reading this at the time mm-hmm. and not a world when, you know, I, I don't know, but I honestly feel like if you're reading this as seven, that, it, that you know, Fantastic Four Divorce Comics has a whole different meaning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. But reading it, like, just imagine you're reading it today and a subplot went on with so little forward motion yes. for more than a year would just be like, please just do something. Yes. I, I don't care what you do, just do something. With yeah, it. yeah. For God's sakes, Warren Ellis, just finish the fucking comic.
1: <laughs> oh, wait, did I say that out loud? Oh, I'm so sorry.
0: Oh, come on. <laughs> hey, let's move on to the issues that you really like. Fantastic Four issues 136 and 137. Uh, 136 has the wonderful title. Rock around the cosmos.
2: Yes.
1: And issue 137. Rumble. Planet 3. Ah, oh,
0: Rumble on Planet 3. So now, good. Jeff loves this. Uh, these storylines. Sort of I think they're shit insane, but I couldn't go as far as to say I love them. See... I had- the more I read them, the less I like oh them. Oh my
1: God! You know what? Shame on you, Graham. Because this is this is it's practically Grant Morrison levels of insanity. Actually, the no, sad part it's, is it's it's, it's Mark
0: nuts. Miller levels of insanity. I think. No, really? Because... I I honestly was thinking it was more. There was a lot of Gerber in here in a weird way.
1: Yeah. No. I. uh Well. Yes. Um. Gerber. I. You know. Honestly it does remind me of gerber and that gerber stuff is unhinged um i just feel that gerber for the most
0: part is able to stay on target and <laughs> yeah this this story it's story might have had a target but really fuck knows what it is yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, would uh, so? Do you mind if I try try my oh, hand I, at summarizing? I was
0: going to ask you to try and summarize oh this God. one.
1: Okay. So, Rock Around the Cosmos opens with the uh, FF worrying for a moment that that Reed is passed out and and may in fact be unable to be revived, but they managed to revive him. And in a sort of touching moment, he wakes and sees Medusa and mistakes her for Sue, which is just really like absolutely impossible the way it's staged, but sure. It's awesome.
0: I then really like that moment. God damn it. What's that? I, I really like, that I, mo- I love that moment. No, 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 no I totally do. I too. think there's something genuinely sweet about all through these issues. A that. Crystal is the emotional support for Reeds that everyone else refuses to be. Oh, Medusa. Crystal uh, sorry, yeah, Medusa steps up as basically saying, someone has to be there for this guy. Yeah. Because he's he's going through shit and none of his friends are there for him. Yeah. It, I'm going to be there. But I also really love that Reeds is clearly at sea without Sue. Yes.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm totally down with that. Um... There's a lot of things that are just really kind of interesting there that that i'm I'm never entirely sure how to how to parse per se uh, but one of the things that I do like is that after so many issues of Sue and even Crystal being written sort of in the same sort of hysterical way that Sue's being written, Medusa is a very different kettle of fish. And it's a tremendous relief because she seems, uh, interestingly enough, she seems removed and rational, uh, but she is not, but she's not cold like there's such a there's such a way that marvel traditionally takes the melodrama and cranks it up the other way and it's like stand back i moon dragon have a heart of ice and shall give my love to no man you know and instead medusa clearly cares about reed in a way that seems to be entirely um uh friendly and platonic i mean, i've got a, i've got a weird wink wink theory coming up here but i it doesn't it doesn't really play in this issue so it's not worth pointing out anyway the ff sort of get their shit together grab thomas uh gregory gideon's son and like we're gonna drag you back home and try and cure your cancer it's the least we can do for you which i'm just like really but they didn't huh anyway meanwhile out of the rubble comes a guy covered in radiation and torn clothing and he is one of the awesome henchmen from (laughs) Gregory Gideon's the previous two issues one of the things we covered those issues so quickly I didn't get a chance to talk about how much I loved the Gregory Gideon's henchmen are a prototypes for every henchman
0: Sal Basima will go on to draw for the rest of his life (laughs) It's actually true. They have such a – distinctive is not the right word because it's actually an amazingly generic design. Yeah. But it's it's a design that you look at and you're like, oh, that's a mid-70s Marvel henchman.
2: Yes,
1: exactly. Right there. You can see him and you're like, I've seen this guy in bajillions of comics. So that makes it, to me, in a way, all the more delicious when this uh, – weirdly glowing, torn-up henchman stumbles out of the wreckage uh, and starts like, wow, there's a dead dragon over here. I better get out of here before I'm spotted in the fuzz. And it's like, wish things were like the way they was in the 50s. And you basically get a nice little flashback to him hanging out with his motorcycle gangs and basically being Arthur Fonzarelli until he graduates from high school, becomes a grease monkey and turns like ends up turning to becoming a professional henchman for cash again.
0: This because, is... because there was an ad in the daily bugle for quotes, a bodyguard who didn't care about traditional legalities. Yes. I love the idea. That's how, how henchmen get jobs in Marvel
1: comics. It's the best. It's the best. In fact, Maybe this will make it work for Graham. But honestly, because the other thing that's great about the Basima henchmen from the previous issues is they also kind of look like bugs. So if you can imagine, and believe me, this read-through I did. If you can imagine this entire story, these two issues being told as a literal Venture Brothers episode (laughs) with Henchman 21's amazing (laughs) secret it's the best. It becomes among the best comics of all time because what
0: this, happens? This, this story really is a venture Brothers story. Let's it be perfectly honest. It
1: absolutely is. It absolutely one hundred percent. I. This is the sort of shit that that they are riffing on in their prime. I think. So, uh, Slugger Jones is it Jones or Johnson? It's Slugger Johnson. Slugger, Slugger. Is it Slugger Johnson? It's Slugger Johnson. I'm I'm looking at the page. Yes, yes,
0: there is not something, Slugger Johnson. Someone says someone.
2: Yes.
1: Yes. Slugger Johnson, by virtue, apparently, of being irradiated and nothing else, has drawn the attention of the Shaper of Worlds, who, to me, is still an awesome creation. I love this dude. I've always loved this dude. No doubt because this is is the first... This is where I, I had this comic, I saw him, I was seven. What I didn't realize is is that, you know, they mentioned the fact that he had previously appeared in Hulk 155. He hadn't really appeared in anywhere else but. So, frankly, for all I know, in my casual Marvel-buying youth, I have almost all of the complete appearances of the Shaper of Worlds, <laughs> apart from that issue of Hulk, which I, I had to forcibly restrain myself from digging out the GIT issue And reading, and by forcibly, I mean I was just under the gun with all these issues we had to read. So the great thing about The Shaper of Worlds is he is second-generation cosmic Marvel entity. He is... And he looks it. Can we
0: just say that?
1: Oh, yeah. He he absolutely does look it. He looks like an albino version of a Dungeons & Dragons goblin.
0: No, he looks like an albino version... Of a scrawl with a bad nose job. Graham, we've said exactly the same
1: thing. <laughs> I have bad news for you. But uh, yeah, no. But one of the things that I love, and this is something that is r- hugely resonant to me, is the shape of Rolls, to me, has a fantastic hook, which is he has the divine-like powers to do or create anything, but he has absolutely no imagination at all, whatsoever. In fact, he literally says, as he pops up to Slugger Johnson. It's like, men call me the shaper, he who makes dreams live. It is my power and my curse to be without a native imagination, yet to burn with a ceaseless desire to create. Now again, part of me is like, it's hard, it's hard not to look back and be like, these here we have, like, uh, like part of me is like, it's really hard to believe that Roy like Jerry you would assume that Jerry Conway is totally ripping on Roy Thomas except Roy Thomas actually plotted this issue and therefore Thomas could or could not be plot you know ripping on himself but i think there is something to this there is something really interesting about one of the creations that first comes up that of course i adore uh one of the first big Primal, post-Stanley, post-Jack Kirby, post-Steve Ditko creations, is a character (coughs) that is aware that he has no creative abilities of his own. And so, therefore, all he can do is recreate the um, things from other people's imagination. I mean, it's kind of like... You know, the the fact is, is that work for hire in the seventies, I don't think really was necessarily that knowing, but maybe at an unconscious level, the sort of fears or anxieties. Anyway, here's where the shit gets awesome. The shaper drawn by this, the radiation, which apparently mistakes for the grand dreams of this dude, uh, Slugger Johnson. He's like, finally in you, I have found that energy and now it shall be released. And little radiation waves come out of Slugger Johnson, spread across the neighborhood where, like, you see a long-haired kid fighting with his dad. You see people in their modern supermarkets, and then you see the FF flying through the air, and they have totally—Reed has forgotten how to fly, Johnny— forgets how to flame on Jerry Conway forgets that there was an innocent kid in the fantastic car. So they have to figure out a way that he doesn't die, even though they've all crashed earth and themselves have almost died. And then on the next page, as soon as they fall in, there is the glorious page of greasers on sky bikes, attacking, what is supposedly a fallout shelter, but it looks a lot, to me, like one of the Cinerama
0: domes from San Jose. So uh, I, I really genuinely love that Ben Grimm's like, that looks just like a fallout shelter. Yeah. Does it? I have never seen a fallout shelter look yeah. like that. No, no. Ever. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, uh... One of the things that's really fun is is Reed and Ben immediately start jumping in on these JDS who are flying around attacking the fallout shelter. A lot of whom have guitars strung over their backs, which is awesome. Uh, and in what is a truly enjoyable uh, page, God, what did I put on my notes? Because the the problem keeping track of the the page numbering on these things is truly a fucking nightmare Uh, starts off with Johnny and Medusa being like, we can't just stand by Medusa. We've got to help them. They don't have a chance without us. And of course they turn around and immediately begin attacking uh, Reed and Ben, which sort of comes out of nowhere is kind of great. And then speaking of coming out of nowhere, here comes the fuzz. I don't even know how to describe the characters that fly out of uh the fallout shelter, except to say they are general they are awesome i i can't help i didn't have they, time to look, but they were amazing me. they kind of i kind of feel like uh Walt Simonson swiped their designs a little bit for the Cops of his future they're basically yes. guys wearing blue and red with like stars and stripes on their side. But, and this is the touch that is so amazingly Gerber-esque. They're all wearing 3D glasses and, uh, they subdue Medusa with like atomic hula hoops. Um, but fortunately, uh, the JDs and the torch managed to rescue Medusa and fly off with Thomas in tow. Reed and Ben end up lining up with, uh, the Patriots Um, They meet Joe Cohn, which I'm like, who is one of the chief protectors for the nation. They fly back inside the fallout shelter where there is an amazing panel of the
0: females in of the nation. Yeah. If ever there was a panel that we have to put in the show notes. Oh, my God. uh, It's that particular panel. Not only for the, the women's outfits, which is Madonna's like... Crazy bra from her blonde ambition tour 30 years early, but also with pictures, a no vagina thrown with, in. With- that's true with it. I did forget the hypno vagina. Thank you for reminding me. Um, but it, it also features a man pointing at uh, Reed and Ben saying, "Are you now or have you ever been a member of the youth party?" Yeah <laughs> it's amazing.
1: Yeah, it is just great. so uh, so they basically are dragged into uh, a meeting with a big the big, ominous voice. Uh, which, which I love. Graham, I cannot tell you. Out of all the things that there are to love about this issue, and there's a lot, there's the fact that the head of the nation is a guy who basically, his name is MC Hammer. I mean, sure. Technically, it's McHammer, but every time I read it, they're like, take them to MC Hammer. I'm like, how can this, how can this issue be any better? And I, the, Well,
0: what is hilarious is you have that, and then you have the... Jerry Conway is trying to make a point, but makes a point in a way that is so nineteen seventies that it seems as offensive to us in twenty sixteen as the 1950s attitude will have seemed to everyone in nineteen seventy. Yes. Yes. Where uh, where um Joe Cohn walks past a black man and almost knocks him over and read actually thinks Cohn didn't seem to see that black man as though the black were an invisible man. The black the black. hmm Yeah. Oh,
1: Oh, man. man. (laughs) So then, meanwhile, just as uh, the JDs bring Johnny and Medusa back to a malt shop, where in a scene that uh, prefaces (laughs) the creepiness that is to come, they plug in a, a jukebox that begins hollering, Rock around the cosmos, rock, 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 and Medusa literally grabs her head and says, the music, it's so loud, it's killing me! Johnny destroys it. I don't know if this was just to give things a certain amount of juice, but... Exactly, it's its time for an a action scene. But it's wonderful, right? Yeah. i I, as a kid, it freaked me out. Even now, I think there's a certain... We're entering that zone where bad comics, bad movies, bad TV sometimes go. Where the lack of logic just points to just a, it's a sheer fever dream of terror and so we get a scene as just as reed and uh ben are being taken to meet mc hammer uh johnny and medusa meet wild man the the leader who is pretty much the in in an in a Single panel intro that shows he's got his back turned to the readers standing in front of a giant, enormous demonic guitar on an altar that has a death's head and sort of what looks like the Japanese flag behind it. This panel pretty much prefaces most of what Quentin Tarantino was trying to do with Kill Bill 1 or Kill Bill 2 as far as I'm concerned. He more or less, you know, they managed to bring that like 30 years earlier. Also, can we talk about the narration? Oh, I was just going to read it. it. I was going to read that panel because so literally there's a panel of wild man is what is how he's introduced. So you see that one yelling panel and then the captions are from somewhere comes the faintest strumming of an electric guitar, a whisper as soft as a revving motorcycle, as gentle as... As the scream of a victim in pain. I adore that. If that's wrong, I don't want to be right. So, it, it's,
0: it's wrong, Jeff. Oh. I'm just I'm just gonna tell you mm, that because mm, it mm, is mm. it it's actually the point where I was like, Oh, I think Roy Thomas might have done more than just conceive of the plot and edit it. Mm-hmm. I think Roy Thomas has had his fingers in the script here. Yeah, yeah. I, I it 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 is
1: some amazingly prolic stuff, but I love. Although that being said, and we'll, we'll get to this because I, I apologize for doing such a slow burn recap of just this one issue. Wildman turns around and he's like, what have we here? Seems I've seen these pretty faces before, but I just can't remember where. And there's an actual little uh, editor's note saying, take a close look, then flip back to page seven and tell us what you see. Sneaky Roy. So you flip back to page seven and it helps that there's only one person on that page, so you're like, "Oh, it must be uh, what Slugger Johnson." I almost said Snapper Carr, which would have been hilarious. And uh, so he's apparently in this brave new world, has become the head of the JDs, and well,
2: now,
0: do you want me to blow your mind? Yes, you're looking at the wrong page. They mean page seven. Of the story, which means you're actually looking at the long-haired hippie guy and the father who are fighting, who are MC Hammer and Wildman.
1: Oh, that makes so much more sense. I was like, why are they so goddamn confused about
0: it, this? I thought i just explain that for you. Because Slugger becomes, as you'll see very soon, Albert Einstein. No, 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 no. I know. I thought that they fucked up the plotting on that. I really thought that that was
1: like a weird Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas oversight. So thank you. That does make a lot more sense. It would have helped if those guys had looked a little more closely, you know, it's
0: like if they looked alike,
1: if they, if they looked at all like the characters that they then go on to portray. But what's awesome is the next um, three pages, the lead up to the end of the episode. I I really dig in terms of it being just to me then and to me now still incredibly horrifying. The way Oh it in is. Which...
0: It's, it's really creepy. I, yeah. I the last page of this issue is super creepy to me. Even
1: even, you know, I have to say you mentioned Gerber, but uh the and and the way where I really feel that, the next to last page which has uh McHammer, MC Hammer yelling. What do you know of the brain? Tell us what you know about the brain. And of course, the sort of exhausted faux Einstein character in the middle, like it's a page composed as a page, and it basically shows the FF sweating, terrified, freaking out. This sorrowful page in the middle. Rock and roll DJs like yelling and losing their minds, and it's. It's just unhinged. The great thing about it is is that out of all the various, like, oh, the FF are brainwashed and now they're going to fight each other. The sequence of this is so, the page right before it, where the DJs are interrogating Johnny and Medusa. One of the DJs says, come on, sister, you can tell old Roger the B. When did the Pelvis's record well, when did the pelvis record its her first hit? Tell me, tell me, tell me! And there's something that's so insane about it. It genuinely, genuinely, fucking yeah. nuts.
0: There's so, there's something really, really, and, and for me, the the page you're talking about, the full page where you have the the sweating and and everything. The end of it is the the two different sides, the yes. the JDS and then the the lawmen, both looking. Smug as hell, yeah. That their work is done, and then you cut to the the Fantastic Four, who have both been brainwashed. And I don't know why, but there's something really disturbing to me about the Johnny and yeah. Medusa brainwashed in particular. Yeah. I don't know why it's so disturbing to me, but it genuinely is. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it really is. There's there. It's just some great stuff. I mean. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating that like that Thomas apparently plotted this story after eating uh, after watching a Star Trek marathon and eating an entire (laughs) pan of pot brownies. But I cannot argue with the results, which are, (laughs) oh, my God, there's some crazy ass shit. So. Each side is set to retrieve the brain and, of course, kill the other team if they get in their way. And with that, we
0: get to Rumble on Planet 3, the next (coughs) issue 137. Has clearly rethought things between issues. Yeah. Because if Ben and Reed ended issue 136 brainwashed, and they did, they start 137 not brainwashed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it may
1: be because there's a certain amount of. Uh, need to have sensible exposition. Nonetheless, there's that opening page where I don't know if Basima is um, riffing on another piece of established uh, art, but it's got Reed and Ben standing in front of a castle, which is the last thing that you would expect after the previous issue, which has a beautiful full moon floating behind it, and it is astounding. I sort of... Part of me was like... Because there's such a shout-out to the 50s, I have this real feeling like maybe there's a lift, like that's a piece of EC art that
0: was yeah, revisited. Maybe it was a sci-fi pulp cover or something. Yeah. Because the level of rendering, especially on the moon. Mm-hmm. Makes exactly. me think that something is there 's a shout out to something because it actually stands out.
1: Yeah, it stands stands out really markedly. Basima has his influences that he loves, but particularly, like you said, the rendering on the moon is such a um, reminds me so strongly of Wally Wood uh, that I, I'm really wondering if there's supposed to be an, an EC lift in there. Nonetheless, if you're into it for the Venture brothersness of it, uh, there's a great sequence where they approach this drawbridge. They're like, we have to cross the moat and get into the castle. You cut to the inside of the castle where the guards are like, it appears we have visitors, Wolfgang. Alert the ramparts. We'll keep those two intruders from reaching the brain, no matter what tricks they may try. Cut back to Reed. Here's the trick they're trying. That's it, Ben. Now swing me around like a lariat. And I just love that. That cracks me up because not only do we have fucking read the return of no, let me tell you you're chewing gum wrong. Let me show you how to do it. But also, just the idea that this is the plan that they've chosen just seems so hilariously absurd and impotent. <laughs> it's very Venture brothers there, There's
0: There's so much I love about it, especially because why couldn't he just stretch over there by himself? I know! There's no reason! <laughs> there's no reason!
1: Instead, it's like, okay, here we go! And so there's the drama of, you know, here's here's Ben trying to cross the moat while... I, and who knows? Maybe this is just you know Conway or Thomas or whoever wrote the plot. But Seema's like, yeah, this I'm I'm drawing this is exactly as interesting as I feel that it is. So you get Ben crossing the moat by walking across Reed's back while Reed complains. And in theory, you've got guys laser crossbowing them as they try and cross. But uh, the only person who's clearly upset about this is Reed. Like he's the only one who's worked up. They break... Ben just seems to just slowly wander across. He's not running. he's he's, he's basically telling a story about his bad back back in the army and how he had someone walk on it and like how it helped him out. And it's like, what?
0: Like the the best part is he is telling a story. He's really relaxed. And you have Reed going the door, bend the door. I know. And he's like, Oh, sorry, Reed. Guess I got carried away. I'm like,
1: what? So you get, you get a fight scene between the FF and, uh, The FF, I should say, where um, Johnny takes on Mr. Fantastic and Medusa takes on Ben. And meanwhile, you find out the big reveal, which is the brain is unsurprisingly (coughs) Slugger Johnson. uh, And the Shaper of Worlds has remade things in his... uh, reality in his image. But of course, Slugger is like, you got everything all wrong. How the fuck? You fouled up everything. I asked you to make me top dog in this crummy world and look what happens. This is all wrong. Now, the great thing is... What it,
0: what, the, what the shaper has actually done is he has literally made him look like Albert Einstein. Yes, this is not just oh he looks like an old man. Actually, in terms of art, he looks more like old Kurt Vonnegut than he looks like Albert Einstein. It is true.
1: It starts off as Einstein sort of at the beginning, but you're right.
0: He totally looks like Kurt Vonnegut. And but or... in the dialogue, he actually Slugger actually says. They think I've got all the blessed answers just because you reshaped me to look like Einstein. Yeah. So it's literal. He's literally supposed to look like Einstein. Yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah, and instead he sort he sort of looks like if Mark Twain had discovered polyester at best. So uh, you get a nice little recapping of the recap of the recap, and then finally. Uh, he, uh, Slugger is like, we got to break out the warhead, Shaper, just like in those movies I used to see in the drive-ins. Otherwise, we ain't got a chance. Very well, Slugger Johnson. This is a step I do not relish taking. But this is your world, and if you claim we must, then by eternity we shall. So, cut back to the fight scene, and then comes, again, to me, another inspired choice. Which is, they get transported to a drive-in movie theater, and... On the screen is an enormous, giant monster that is wrecking the city, and then, of course, comes out of the screen and begins attacking the FF. The part that I think is inspired is, as you point out, things are sort of vaguely Gerber-esque, because this character looks like two of Steve Gerber's uh, headmen sort of mushed together. But really, because he is, as I believe um, uh, Ben so aptly describes him, the warhead looks like a cross between Sputnik and King Kong. So he's got the body of a giant ape and he has the head of basically sort of what we thought of Sputnik or other satellites looking like basically a globe with little protruby things about it. What I adore is that a Roy Thomas, again, being subtle, he literally is the warhead. It is the Sputnik is the beginning of the cold war as far as, uh, as far as, um, Thomas is concerned, and also the character the monster looks exactly like Robot Monster from the terrible 50s monster movie, Robot Monster, uh, written and directed by Phil Tucker, so, which was, I don't know if you that, were, that ever is, saw this, by Graham. the way,
0: I, I, you're getting into deep, deep cuts, I've never heard of Robot Monster. Oh,
1: all you have to do, Graham, go Google it right now, and what you will see is you will see... Robot monster, Phil Tucker, it was such a low-budget monster movie. He's not a giant alien, but he is an alien that is a gorilla suit with a diving <laughs> oh bell goodness. helmet on his head, right?
0: Oh, okay, so that's another image that I guess has to go in the show notes. People, if, you, if you're if you not listening to us by looking at the show notes, and if you don't want to go to com, hey, our feelings are only slightly hurt, but you should go to Google right now and Google Robot Monster because – Wow, Jeff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? So so here I am. I'm able to bring at least a little bit of level to uh, uh, extra trivia to an incredibly trivial storyline. Uh so the FF jump in uh, the warhead or vice versa cut back to MC Hammer and his his patriot men and uh you see them once again shove aside the black, who this time, like the rest of them, is wearing this sort of awesome kind of Bucky He's wearing plus, Bucky it's basically a Bucky plus outfit. Uh, so he, the, our our unnamed gentleman, goes down on an elevator, uh, rides an elevator down to the slums, um, where the the caption says, "A wise gentle, a wise gentleman said." If you've seen one slum, you've seen them all. In that case, you've already seen this slum, and you know it for what it is and what it hides. Misery. Human misery. The misery of being abandoned and alone. And, of course, you know, again, in this, like, we really do mean well, but we're kind of fucked up on our own issues. Of course, these people are not alone. They're with each other. But the fact that all these... uh people of color have been sort of shoved down into miserable conditions is arguably the worst thing. Not the idea that they've been left alone because maybe they really don't necessarily need the white people. Maybe they just need a quality of living. So uh, our, our invisible man sits down there and gives a speech. Uh, and yes, I'm deliberately using that, that reference to Ralph Ellison, which I sort of suspect Conway and or Thomas intended uh, says, do we believe that when our children grow up with rats and disease, when our fathers leave our families because they're ashamed, they can't fight work. Oh wait, are we going to sit in our apathy forever? Or are we going to fight not on MC hammers terms with guns and fire, but with the strength of will, we know he can't resist. Are we going to say we're men, we're men. And you're going to accept that because we won't settle for anything less for you or from the world. Well, the answer's yours, brother. Is it yes or no? And they all holler, yes. And he's like, then let's move, brothers. Destiny lies that way. On the next page, where the JDs and the FF are fighting the warhead. Uh, so the generation gap has sort of been closed in order to fight a giant ape with a satellite head that can shoot rays. And then when the Patriots show, they also join to the attack so everyone has become unified to the fact, to the point where, like, Ben can actually fly down a dude on a hover bike and basically fly up in the air and execute his brilliant plan of punching the thing very, very, very hard until it falls back into the movie screen and it fades away. See, you're being sarcastic about his plan, but it works. It does work. Absolutely. J- just want to put that out there, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Uh, that was... <laughs> There was some sarcasm right there. So, uh, <laughs> so, what you see is just at the moment that the uh, youth and the previous generation uh, basically have come together to defeat a common enemy, they start, telling, they start pulling themselves uh, apart again. They're like, don't kid yourself, Pop. Just be- we just teamed with you, Frizzheads, because we needed to. You think that means anything permanent? You're wrong. And someone yells, right on, brother! Right? What? Yes. In a scene that, again, makes you think that uh, Roy Thomas went two pot brownies too far. He basically you're,
0: creates... You're, you're blaming Thomas for this. Jerry Conway is still the scriptor, remember. Yes, but he's working from a plot. This was plotted by <laughs> Thomas.
1: Thomas is basically like, okay, so then what happens is... All the black people show up and have a big confrontation confronting the white people. And when the white people are like, What's the meaning of this? Who are you? Who are you people? We're your conscience, Mr. Patriot. While you folks were off fighting the big bad menace, we were getting ourselves together, finally understanding that if we want our civil rights, we'd have to demand them. Dig, dig. What sort of slang is that? It's the slang of the sixties, mister, and that's where we are now. No more safe and cozy nineteen fifties for you, brother. You're gonna have to come out of your Eisenhower cocoon. You're gonna have to grow up, mister Supernational Patriot. I said we were your conscience and baby, that's where we are that's what we are, what we're gonna be. Face it, Buster. You just can't go home again and they sort of I, fade I, I, into yeah. yeah. They disappear. Mm-hmm. Vanish as, though they never vanished existed. as though they
0: never existed. Exactly.
1: So it's just so exciting. The Shaper shows up and is uh, gets just, to explain himself yet exciting.
2: again. It's oh yeah,
1: dude, what is wrong with you? That guy. That guy looks like the world's wor- like this guy looks so much like the gold key drawings of Mister Spock. It is tremendous. Uh, so he basically shows up and says the dreamer I chose was not worthy of having his fantasies realized and I apologize for my error. It was he who threatened you in the guise of the warhead. He whom you sought and knew as the brain. I have placed him in a world where his dreams of petty violence will harm no one. And in his stead, I've taken the boy you call Thomas. The boy shall be cured of his fatal disease. And for a time he shall provide the dreams with which I must exist. It will be a pleasant life for both of us until he must return to reality, even as I must now return to the dream. And then everyone sort of warped back to where things were before flying in the Fantastic Four and the Pogo Jet. And, of course, Ben's like, ah, we're back to riots and pollution and women's lib. Maybe we should have stayed in the 50s. I mean, things weren't all that bad, was they, Torchy? And, of course, Torch says, not another word, Ben. I think I'm going to be sick. So there's kind of a... there's Again, you have Roy Thomas, the world's first and foremost purveyor of nostalgia, railing against nostalgia in a two-part story scripted by Jerry Conway. And you basically have two guys who years later will more or less be excoriated, at least by a certain segment, of the comic reading population as unimaginative hacks more or less thrashing out and reliving the dreams of guys who uh, actually have genuine imaginations. And here you see it in the storyline as well as not one, not two, but more or less three Star Trek endings jammed into one episode where you have... The racial confrontation, you have the, did they truly exist or didn't they? It's like history was being relived in a completely different way right before our very eyes. Is such a thing possible? And then the all-omnipotent being, t- being I will take Christopher Pike slash Thomas Gideon away with us, and he will be able to actually have something like a normal life and far beyond his imaginings until it's time for him to die. And man, life is bittersweet. It's a great set of issues. It is batshit crazy. It almost... It makes no sense. I was... It, I've read it this makes thing... makes no sense. I'll give you that. Three times. Yeah, thanks, Graham. I appreciate you conceding at least one of the points so as not to appear no. <laughs> uh,
0: I know It's it's the most fun of the storylines that we're covering this time. Definitely. It's fun it and is, it's insane. It, it it's is, insane. is insane. And I, I mean, think... Nuts of shit And the FF need more
1: of this It really is the closest you get And this is the thing that I really appreciate I don't know, I don't think they were Necessarily trying to do Kirby In this, and one of the things that's great Is it's the most Kirby-ish issues I think we've read Since Kirby left
0: Like, it is but what's, it, what's really interesting about it is I get that, but the I also get a lot of Kirby in there like when the the gangs show up, uh, the JDs show up. Yeah, I was like, oh, it's the Harrys from Jimmy Olsen. Mm-hmm. That was my that was the first place I went.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, that's act that's absolutely a good point. Um, th- there are ways. Sort of the same way I had my Thundra Big Barda suspicions. You do wonder. You get the sense that maybe they are looking at, at some of this stuff. Um, and you know they're still writing around. It's still being inked by Joe Sinnott. It still looks like. The FF, you know, and you still got Basima, you know, drawing things, but, but it's, it's off. I do also kind of like the idea that, um, although, how do I put it? Reed Richards says something like, it's almost as if we saw the fifties rehappen all over again, where there was a generation gap and the sides came together against a common threat, which was the Soviet menace. That is ridiculously wrong. I don't think anyone would characterize the 50s that way at all. It's far more accurate to say that there was a generation gap in which both sides more or less were the same side, and there's sort of a weird, creeping paranoia, I guess, on both sides. In fact, one of the things that's kind of interesting that I think is probably... Unintended, but as you point out, which I missed, um, the kid, the MC Hammer, and the Wild Man are the long haired son and the dad we see fighting before the Radiation Shapers remakes them into these characters. What I think is fascinating to me is the idea that there is this generational conflict. They basically have played out exactly the same conflict that you see happening in the 50s that you you know you see them have in the 70s the huge exception here that i think is fascinating like said not sure if it's intended but you could sort of make the case that what happened in this for the majority of the 60s in which the kids fought their elders because they just weren't understood by resetting that in the fifties, you get the idea that that thomas is thomas slash Conway Conway is more or less trying to reinforce this idea that you've always had this battle between the generations, but what truly changes it, what truly makes the sixties different, is the civil rights movement and I think that's there's something kind of weird in that It doesn't make any sense the way that it ends it doesn't even necessarily you know. I'm not sure how much it holds together allegorically. And this is usually the point where you tell me that I'm, I've put, I'm I'm overthinking it or whatever, but I do think that there's something to this idea of what is supposed to be a generational conflict that you sort of see happen with over and over and over again. The part that makes it truly different uh, is something that nobody could have expected and is kind of a much weirder, Conclusion or finale, than Reed saying like, "It's like we saw history rehappen before our eyes, in which a thing that didn't happen in the fifties, we then saw happen again." You know, so <laughs> they're great issues, Graham. I'm sorry, you're you can you can trash talk, compliment them as much as you want.
0: But no, I, 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 I could, I'm going to trash talk the next issues, Jeff. Oh yeah, I'm going to trash talk Ff one thirty eight and one thirty nine. Oh so Madness. bad is mm. the miracle man and target colon tomorrow
1: which is a great and... title but why is it target
0: tomorrow did you ever exactly. figure that out <laughs> nothing to do with the story at all yeah i'm now going to tell you the one good thing about this issue about the storyline in fact both these issues white wolf comes back yay That's it.
1: although i have to say he's much less interesting here right off the bat for whatever reason as happy as i am to see him um...
0: Well, he's he's not as he's literally not as interesting. Yeah. When it was Lee and Kirby, you got the feeling that he could have been a solo star in his own right. Yes, yes. That he had the both the drive, but also kind of like the the origins mm-hmm. that, that that could carry a, a solo series. And when he returns this time, he returns very firmly in a subservient role. Yes. Yes. He returns as a As a MacGuffin mm-hmm. But also when things start to happen That he is there for Whereas in the Kirby issues He would just leap into action himself Absolutely he pretty Much here is like hey you guys What's happening over there
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And that, that, that is a, a, a dramatic change But it doesn't matter I like Wyatt a lot I do too I'm very very glad to see him back Especially because he did just kind of disappear before Yes, I know, which is kind of a bummer. So
1: here you see him come back, and uh, we also learn uh, in in the first issue of this two-part story that Johnny Storm has another power that a uh, flame-related power that we've never heard about and we see manifested again, which is he sees himself in the mirror and decides he looks like a square or a refugee from an old Elvis flick. And so he runs off to go and do something about his hair. And what he means is, of course, his hair is cut kind of short in the back and it's kind of bushy in the front. And when we next see him, he has used his flame powers to actually grow more hair all over his head because... That's the only explanation that I think makes sense for how he's able <laughs> to say I've gotta do something about my hair and literally grows hair between two pages. It's He's amazing. not growing hair, he's just restyled his hair, Jeff. He it's you see a shot of the back of his fucking head and then you see it again. I know what I I know. Anyway, people may I know remember. I know what
0: growing hair looks I like. I know what grow I
1: this is growing hair. This isn't just a, some fucking makeover bullshit. This is something in far more insidious. Johnny among his Universe, hair grows because of heat, okay? Yeah, there you go. So it's just I think he was able to grow flame hair. He's basically wearing a flame toupee, which actually explains why everyone finds it so funny when he shows his new hair and everyone
0: laughs. And also when he shows his new hair, he is so glum. Yeah. He's like really – So like weirdly embarrassed and upset about his hair. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I didn't get it. I, I read these issues multiple times and each time I was like, what is actually supposed to have happened here? I'm telling you, Flame
1: Toupee, it's the only thing that makes sense. So people may remember that there was an issue of the Fantastic Four where, like, Wyatt Wingfoot's people were being threatened by a, a foreign, Zuma. by a Soviet oil company. Was it a two-parter? Was it two issues?
0: No, I said it was two
1: remember? Oh, yeah, right. How could I forget that? Well, good news. Everything that you liked about that story... Uh, I want to say is back, but frankly, there wasn't much about that story that would li- that you would like. It's no, all no, gone. No, everything
0: you like about that story is not back. Because yes. in that story, at least, Wyatt Stripe had some agency. And yes. in this one, what the fuck?
1: So bad. So bad. Wyatt graduates from college. Again, you get a nice little character moment with like Johnny sitting there being like, huh, yeah, that could have been me. What have I really fucking done with my life? Coach Boring shows up again. We have never going to get the
0: resolution of that subplot hinted at long <laughs> yeah. ago. But it is so great because when Coach Thorne does show up, he says, I've been meaning to get in touch with your brother-in-law, Reed Richards. He and I were, and then he gets cut off. Yep. That at least establishes that he's been meaning to get in touch with Reed. Yes. Coach Thorne is here to stay for a few issues. Yes. You will not find out why he was trying to get in touch with Reed, however. Yeah,
1: but you, you generally know why. I mean, by the end of these. Sort of. You can infer.
0: I, I, I would dispute that. But anyway, we'll move past that. Um, the, the graduation is interrupted by the fact that something is happening back in Oklahoma, where Wyatt comes from. And he and the Fantastic Three, because Reed has decided he is a wet blanket and it's not good to go, shoot off to Oklahoma, where they are met by Silent Fox, who, he says, has reason to be grim, son of my son. A demon has risen from the hills to add to our misery, and ours is not the only tribe so afflicted. These others, from the villages beyond the dark hills, they come to us seeking shelter, for their own homes have been destroyed. <laughs> Why do you think they've been destroyed, by Jeff?
1: Well, you know, fortunately, you actually see them get destroyed by that giant mountain thing. But that's wait, where, where do the mountain come from? That's Jeff. right the one of the world's more boring villains has returned the miracle man from FF number three. But this time he's got real miracle powers that he's going to actually manifest in ways that are so incredibly dull. Oh my God. So boring.
0: So boring. Well, is does, the, fight with the miracle fascinating man. thing in the second issue of this two part storyline. It has to be said to begin with his uh, magical miracle powers show up by him making hands come out of rocks, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, that's what you do if you have miracle powers. Yep. Um, nonetheless, that is enough for him to defeat the FF. So yep. there's that. Yep. It it did work. And how does he defeat the FF? By creating a massive crack in the earth that everyone falls into. Mine is the power to make miracles," he says, "and mine is the destiny to rule till the very end of time. Time,
1: I'm Fortunately, yeah. you, Graham has left out the fact that the reek that there basically is a dueling banjo sequence where the Human Torch recaps what happens in FF number three with uh, Mister Miracle, uh, Miracle Man, and Mister Miracle Man, and then you have. Uh, Miracle man, pick it up and actually tell us uh, everything else that
0: happened to him. So it's dueling flashbacks. Oh, 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 but also the everything else that happened to him. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. What's the origin of Miracleman's superpowers, Jeff? Well, basically,
1: he uh, he gets out of prison after he does a bunch of researching, and uh, he goes into, like, a big old cave. And he finds the uh, seven magical um, Indian shaman who basically, Light Horse, uh, basically says, hmm, uh, how's it do-? Basically, it's incredibly patronizing. He more or less
0: dealt with the white man it would be interesting to learn what you have to tell us and only fair to to reveal our secrets in turn to you yeah and then the narration goes light horse and his tribe were ignorant of the dealings indians had had with the white man they were suckers for every lie i told them and in return they taught me little things at first lifting small pebbles and eventually larger things such as boulders trees even men the learning didn't stop with that though there was more, much more that I learned in the weeks I spent with the Chimusuba. Truly, I became the miracle man. Yeah. Oh, God. Yep. Uh, and then uh, he, he turns on them and buries them with rocks because yes. while they can teach him to control rocks, somehow they can't control rocks themselves when someone throws rocks at them
1: oh it's it it gets even more confusing. They show up as immaterial figures floating in the air in the first place and then become corporeal enough for him to crush with the rocks that they can't control and also, I want to say that the Chimazuma I refer to while reading as the Cheeto zimas for the entire time just because I can't think of a more hideous concoction than eating Cheetos and drinking zima so
0: uh, <laughs> I, I feel that, I feel what you've just said is truly offensive i know probably I, is I, I even i even as you said it i honestly was like i feel we have to apologize
1: well i should double check i'm assuming if i do not think that Chimazuma is like a real I, yeah, yeah i st- i still don't care i still feel it's offensive
0: i feel like you've somehow crossed the line really yeah.
1: uh, like by making fun of the imaginary stereotypical tribe that yeah. is just absolutely
0: I, I, horrifying I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I can't explain it.
1: Okay, well, fair enough, then. I, By which I mean, if you think so, I I
0: apologize.
1: I apologize I am, for anyone who's Googling.
0: offended.
1: i Googling. Uh,
0: I am, too. No, they are only in the the Marvel Universe. Bum, bum, uh, bum, they yes. are only these seven magical men. Oh, wow. See, there you go. So, so suck it, Cheeto-Zima. That's what I have to say. Um... <laughs> Don't you piss off... Native American fake comic book gods. Oh you have, God. You've had a sh- week already. You know I know. It is totally true. I,
1: I, I am. I'm tempting imaginary fate. Target Tomorrow. What
0: is the tomorrow in Target Tomorrow? Nobody knows. No.
1: But it does highlight one of the things that's very important you should know about Jerry Conway's run in the Fantastic Four. This man loves a colon. It pops up in captions, it pops up in dialogue, it pops up
0: in I love, titles. I love films, too. I'm completely okay with it. I that.
1: do, too. I'm, I'm definitely into it. Uh, so, everyone's falling into a chasm in the earth. Uh, Johnny manages to save everyone with, again, well-applied weirdo human torch powers. Like, yeah, of no, course that, of course, works. No,
0: that, that totally makes sense. For once, the human torch science is sound. He creates a, a heated updraft which slows everyone from falling. Sure. That, that makes sense. Yeah, that part makes sense, but it's an endless chasm.
1: The part is is when he creates the floor of the endless chasm by putting a little applied it's heat to the book side we'll, Oh god damn it, Graham. So anyway. <laughs> Uh, Miracle Man basically creates himself a fake empty city Uh, and is this not the ultimate insanity this hollow imitation of life this pointless echo of reality says the guy who's writing the Fantastic Four after Stanley and Jack Kirby
0: have left Uh, (laughs) and then uh, Miracle Man Man gets up to some interesting stuff in this issue he also tries to create people and it turns out that he can create people but they have no soul they're very scared of him and they are very pale
1: I love the fact that he more or less – that Jerry Conway creates the Jim Shooter comic uh, in this issue. You know what I mean? Like he that doesn't he go – It's f- a
0: woman – he creates a weird soulless woman and then decides <clears throat> that he's going to like sexually harass her. Yes. Also, very disturbing that um, Miracle Man says, excellent, excellent. Their ideals. Just they've always imagined them to be. This is about the people he's creating, remember? A little pale perhaps, yet the racial type is perfect.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, oh. yeah. Mr. Yeah. Miracle
1: is uh, sorry, Mr. Miracle. Miracle Man is very much a is very much a douche. Uh so you get this big fight in a futuristic city that you would think Could uh, I mean, how exciting is it to actually watch uh, the Fantastic Three and White Wingfoot fight a bunch of instantly conjured people who are basically known for being pale or in some cases monstrous? And then uh, the Miracle Man who has power, except when he doesn't. Um, I do enjoy the little sequence where he and Ben Grimm have a little punch out. And basically Ben does the thing that pops up. He does several times in in this run until the point – to the point of tedium where he gets up, gives a big speech and basically says, you're a low life, mister. And he more or less says, you have no class. You're second rate and clobbers him. And then that's –
0: seems like it would be it. I really like Ben Grimm. I think I'm on record as saying Ben Grimm is probably my favorite Marvel Comics superhero. There is something about your description of Bangroom just there that made me think of Donald Trump. Yes. And I don't appreciate that one bit. Oh, my God. It's so funny
1: because I was actually going to make the joke later when we see Dr. Doom. He more or less is, becomes Donald Trump by the end of it. You know what I mean? Like, there's some weird – like, as far as they're concerned with Jerry – Jerry Conway is concerned, at least. When you think Dr. Doom, you think of New York real estate exploding in space because that seems to be – Everyone at some point is like, okay, then we got to have him shoot the building into space and blow up. And I'm like, why, why is this? Why is this Dr. Dooms thing? Anyway, Star Trek ending number seven happens here where the miracle man is, uh, just like Charlie X wiped away by the, the, chetezima the silent ones who are responsible for the madness of the one you call miracle man and we have taken him away that we may some day cure him perhaps we will may teach him to strive not so strongly against his mortality for therein lies his anguish and his need for absolute power we must accept the fact of his eventual death as we have and see it not as an ending but a doorway to a different life and a new beginning. I do love the
0: fact the the, the draining off of the letters. Uh, Wait, you so... but you have skipped over one of the more nonsensical parts of this entire storyline, which is in the second issue of the storyline. For no reason whatsoever, it is established that when Miracle Man uses his powers, oh, yeah, which are bestowed by the Native Americans, it is doing something to the world's nuclear bombs. Yes, and threatens to set off a chain reaction. Why? Never explained. Yeah. Aside from, clearly at some point, Cherry Conway was like, you know what? It's, is he, if he's just threatening Indians, I'm not done with it. It's not, the stakes aren't high enough. Yeah. What if we just add in, like, nuclear apocalypse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really there, is. There was literally no connection. And also, it only shows up in, like, maybe a page and a half.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And is never, it's resolved at all. Yeah. For all we know, they were utterly unrelated things. Uh, one of the things
1: that is kind of great, and I I don't want to make too much of this, but clearly, uh, we get we get uh, an entire five panels of Sue, uh, her subplot where she's once again petting horses, and Franklin uh, screams and freaks the fuck out. Kind of shocking because it's the first noise we've ever heard from this kid, more or less ever. But even more shocking is the fact that uh the Carol, God, who who the hell is it? What's the last name of this this couple? It's Bob and Carol. It's Carol.
0: It's, there's a know.
1: last name. The important thing, though, and I think this is this points to something very significant. Sue is wearing Carol's outfit from one thirty four, and Carol is wearing Sue's outfit.
0: They like yes. swap clothes, Jeff. I don't they sure
1: do swap clothes and husbands. So it's kind of interesting. Also, the FF build a raft, which is kind of great. So really, this issue's got it all. Covert lesbian <laughs> swingers,
0: God, no, raft no. building. I mean, really, this is a terrible issue, people. It's really, uh, it's, it's, let's move on, Jeff, because this is, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say these are the worst two issues of the run, right?
1: I, 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 no. Uh, well, of the entire run? No, no. You totally no, forgot no, no. About of, the,
0: of these 13 issues.
1: Uh, I don't know. I, I honestly thought the abominable snowman slash return of Ross Andrews slash return of Jeff's oh oh that's, like, that, desire that, that, to die.
0: Those are up there. Arguments to be made for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, one forty, 140, one forty-one, because we are moving on. Yes. An eye list revealed and the end of the Fantastic Four. Before we get there, I just want to say that it's hilarious to me that less than a year after Roy Thomas did the Sue Leaves and Reed says, it's not the end of the Fantastic Four, we have an issue called the end of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. It is, I love that so much, particularly because you remember that Jeff and I both praised the uh, intelligence mm-hmm. that... Thomas credited the reader with <laughs> the Jerry Conway is like fuck it it's the end of the Fantastic Four it's in dirt dirt and they're not getting back together you guys it's definitely the end yep let's see how we get to that end shall we we shall sure. yes can Briefly give a plot synopsis of these two issues? I'll I'll give it a shot.
1: I'll give it a shot. I don't know if it'll necessarily happen. Basically, Annihilus revealed, as it turns out, the way that John Basima draws him, Annihilus has been revealed to be a squirrel or a chipmunk of some sort because (laughs) the prominent front tooth that Annihilus has in every fucking panel drives me insane. (laughs) Meanwhile, (laughs) uh... Reed gets a call from Sue that he's sort of been moping around and hanging out in the Baxter building waiting to have happen forever. And then just as it does, she Wait. fades out in mid call. Yes, what have I Very wonder? quickly,
0: we should say that uh, in the last issue and in 140, in and 140, it is revealed that the reason Reed, uh, Reed has been staying back in the Baxter building is not just that he's a wet blanket, but that he's been working on experiments that are somehow related to Franklin. Yeah, did they even actually... really
1: say that in those issues yeah. that it's related to Franklin?
0: Uh, they don't say it in 139. They do say it in 140. Okay, so here in 140. As, yeah. they, 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 as, they don't explicitly say it. Without suing my son, the entire experiment is pointless, which ah. could be read as he's depressed or could be read as as I read it, that it's actually an experiment to do with Frank.
1: Well done. Well done. That is the proper way to read it, and I have to admit was not the way that I read it. Anyway, the big point is the, the video phone call cuts out in the middle. Reed loses his shit. Uh, as always happens where Reed tries to go anywhere, if he does it with too much urgency we've seen in a previous issue if Reed says nothing to no one and just walks right out of the building they'll let him go. If he stretches, people instantly know to grab Reed and in what I think is a great moment, Medusa, who's the only person who's been mostly sympathetic to Reed in most of these issues, fucking clocks him with a wrench, which is it's wonderful right It's so good. <laughs> Slow him down. And she's like, I can slow him down with a wrench. Yeah. Bam. And it's pretty great. She's like, I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking. It was just that I wanted to help. And Ben says, do me a favor, Red. Don't do me any favors. Uh, One so... of the things
0: we don't find out why the transmission gets broken. No, we don't
1: we we do not except i believe that is agatha harkness fucking with them as we find out because what happens is sue hops in the car with franklin tries to drive the car uh, it takes over uh she no longer has control it drives through the woods and boom there's agatha harkness petting her cat lightning breaking on the 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 hillside behind her saying like will you come with me she casts a magical spell that actually i thought was written relatively well um with a better rhyme scheme than what i just did cut to the fantastic four landing or flying through the trees finding the car reed breaks out his little radiation tracer oh this radiation i know where it's coming from and we're like sure agatha harkness and magic radiation wrong the Negative Zone. Now, one of the things that actually sort of bumps me out about this episode is is that every appearance of Annihilus to date, and the great thing about doing this Baxter Building read-through is I literally have read every appearance of Annihilus to date, is the idea that Annihilus is such a huge fucking menace that he can never be allowed to get to Earth. And that, more or less, the last story that we saw with him, which was basically a, a sort of redux of the other Negative Zone Annihilus stories, more or less... Everything hinged on the fact that he could not get to Earth. He cannot find where Earth is and he cannot get there. So it's kind of a bummer that the FF show up with the negative zone radiation, go back to the Baxter building and discover, boom, Annihilus is breaking out and is on Earth. Um, And yet there's no real talk about what that means other than... Annihilus is now going to kick their asses. He pimp slaps uh, Ben Grimm, which is pretty interesting. He cosmic control rods uh, Johnny out of the sky. Uh, Medusa and Reed tag team him with a concentrated hurricane bomb, which Annihilus is like, that means nothing. Zaps them all. And interestingly (laughs) enough... Only Wyatt Wingfoot is left, and Annihilus is strangely into Wyatt Wingfoot in a way that I find kind of adorbs. He totally uh, shackles him with some cosmic shackles, but then other than that, is like, I dig you, Wyatt Wingfoot. Let me tell you a little story that's got one amazingly egregious Kirby swipe in it, at least, about an intelligent little grasshopper who, in strange this is a weird thing that runs throughout these Conway stories. That I didn't get to uh, more or less comment on a We find out is more or less a great big nerd on a, a planet of barbaric beasts. Not only can he think, but he's scrawny and can't figure out why he's different. And because he's different, he's why a big is he nerd
0: on a planet of insect jokes?
1: Yeah, basically that is basically it. So in a delightful reversal uh, of, uh, of the movie Alien, he breaks into a spaceship where everyone's dead. This time though, Annihilus, who's the alien, is the hero, finds a helmet, puts it on, and it gives him ridiculous amounts of power in a way that makes me think, holy shit, what if the same guys who had Skull the Slayer's bolt actually also crashed the ship with the helmet. And I started constructing an elaborate Lord of the Rings-like fantasy in which some amazing cosmic-powered supersuit—that that is the equivalent of the rings of the Lord of the Rings have been scattered to all the different planets of Marvel. And when you actually take this leisure wear and combine it in one thing, you will have the ultimate super being. But that's neither here nor there because you get the exciting story of Annihilus's origin, which of course has the origin of a bunch of lion dudes who uh, more or less colonized the planet just so that a race of intelligent species will be able to um, grow up and hear the story of how they all starved to death because they weren't smart enough to bring Slim Jims. So Annihilus says, hey, that's what? my story. now." Wait for
0: a second. Yes. I, let's, let's just pause. I'm taking it from your comments. You did not like that origin, sir.
1: Oh, no. I kind of thought it was pretty good.
0: Okay. I was going to say, if you don't like that, that to me is not a million miles away from the origin of the overminds which you loved <laughs> relatively recently. Okay, you know what? The origin of the
1: overmind is so much better, but I I let's let's I, I will avoid the big overmind argument because we're running tight on time. But yeah, there, I actually enjoyed this issue too. I'm apparently a sucker for these sorts of origins. It also helps that for whatever reason I thought that John Romita's uh, storytelling uh, – Romita, Basima's
0: storytelling in this
1: is kind of awesome.
0: You know, he kind of really sort of – Basima is, Basima's really come into his own in these issues. Yeah, I we think have so too. We criticized him a bunch yeah. uh, for, for really weird pacing and a lot of layout problems, trying to get too much information on the pages. Yeah. And that, that is not the case with these issues. It's kind of sad because we are reaching the end. These are the last Basima issues yes. for, for quite some time. Yeah. Um but his especially I'd say 141. Mm-hmm. I think he has some really really great moments and his his he's finally managed to make the page work in a way that feels uh, Kirby adjacent I guess. He, his his pacing seems a little bit better and he seems to know which parts to emphasize. He
1: knows which parts uh, to it, emphasize. Yeah,
2: exactly.
0: His pages in, in a have way that he
1: has, a more casual like a more casual and compelling flow and even I think a a stronger sense of you made a, a really brilliant observation a couple of uh, Baxter buildings ago that Basima really didn't design for the page; that his storytelling was all just sort of panel to panel. And there's a lot more elements. The pages tend to flow much better, I think.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah.
1: No, most definitely.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I I really do think that 141 is has has a lot of that. 141 has. You know, there was a point where we were complaining that he was putting like nine pages, uh, nine panels on a page. Yes. And and there's there's you know when in one forty one the FF who are at this point are in the negative zone, uh, analysis takes the FF to the negative zone yeah. where he has previously taken Agatha, Sue, and uh, Franklin, but they confront him and it's three panel pages. The, the fight is in, in three panel pages, and yeah. it really allows for some of the quote unquote power of the fight to come through. Yes. Absolutely.
1: Uh, I'm trying to think if there's a lot that's that's really exciting here. I mean, that being said, like, you get the FF, they're in the negative zone. Uh, Annihilus is uh, very happy to be, like, the world's most cosmic-powered squirrel. He is going to sap the power out of Franklin, who uh, Franklin has become been... Turned into a monster is how Annihilus phrases him, not only because uh, he's the product of two beings like infused with cosmic rays, but uh, back when Reed jumped back in FF Annual 6 and managed to save uh, Sue and Franklin by using the cosmic control rod, that's when he really created either a prodigy or a nightmare producing monster. Um, well
0: I I wish is clear by the fact that over the last few issues Franklin's hair color has changed uh, basically with every appearance.
1: Yeah, every fucking appearance. Just cannot nail that son of a bitch down. Sometimes blonde, sometimes brown, brunette, sometimes the, the changes from panel to panel. Uh oh gosh, Cos- I missed Cosmically Powered. Yeah, Cosmically Powered. I take it back. Apparently uh, a popped up in Marvel Team Up 2, which I have to admit I used to own and I must have read but totally forgot. Apparently he made it he made it into Earth that time. And apparently while hanging out very in a very tiny form in a way that's not explained, comes across Agatha Harkness, Sue and Franklin and decides to Agatha Knapp, uh Agatha Harkness and more or less bully her into helping contact uh, Sue and Franklin and snatch them. Doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but again, this is Jerry Conway plotting that we're seeing. Stripped of the powers, they're stuck in a tower. Again, these weird rhymes. I'm not trying to do that intentionally. You would I think feel like you're, you're almost going into like Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I really, I kind of am. <laughs> or I, I was kind of thinking of uh, uh, Dolomite, but you know. It, anyway, it's it's same sort of thing. So, uh, they get imprisoned in a in a tower where again. They have lost their cosmic radiated powers, which they then later regain for no reason, but not before Uh, Medusa's like, hey, remember Rapunzel? Just climb down my hair. And of course, part of me is like, for that matter, she doesn't have her powers from cosmic rays, why would she be depowered at all they get attacked by generic oh, goons cuz she isn't she actually says that oh okay good i'm glad cuz i was kind of like out her hair because yeah. she still has her power well i just thought that they meant that her hair was still really long i don't know so anyway uh yeah which is great cuz i also want to point out this is the second time in which Medusa is the person who figures the way out of the death trap, and again, it's not underscored in that typical Stanley way. But I actually love the fact that she's the one who gets them out of Gideon's death trap as well, or or it's more of a containment trap. But in each case, she's the one I'd who solves the problems. I yeah. really like
0: Medusa in these issues.
1: I by hands down my favorite character by far. By far, and it only gets more interesting when we get to Jeff's like secret theory. But it, actually, the secret theory is facetious, so don't worry. All of which is to say, meanwhile, Annihilus gets punched a lot, punched again and again and again. But Reed Richards, who is the world's worst scientist, uh, actually comes across. <coughs> Franklin, who has his eyes glowing, staring into space, and Reed says, his eyes glowing with some internal power. He doesn't see me. He isn't even aware of my presence. Wait, I can almost feel his thoughts. It is as though the power of his mind was reaching across the void, into my brain. Galaxies, endless stars, the universe spread at his feet. They're like toys to him. A child's toys. Um, so, of course, Reed doesn't really bother to, like, test any of this stuff like a scientist actually would because you know, he doesn't have time. It's the cosmic rays. Annihilus has used on Franklin. They've affected his entire genetic sculpture, sculpture structure in the name of heaven. Hurry, Johnny hurry. Basically they have to get Franklin back, uh, uh, into Sue's arms just so that Reed can go find a big fucking gun and shoot Franklin with it, which is let's face it. That is a, that is kind of a great fucking page. Reed Richards shooting his own kid with a
0: big-ass fucking rifle is... The the rifle is what he was working on in the previous issue, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Which, importantly, and this is not brought up in this issue, but is actually relatively important for the, the overarching story. Reed didn't know if the weapon worked. In fact, he thought it didn't. Uh, before he pulled the trigger or after? Yeah, before. Uh, yeah. Exactly, because when you when he was working on the previous issue, he pretty much is like, "Well, this isn't working," and then he has to leave it before he's finished working on it.
1: Yeah, and he does say this is in this issue. He says this is only my experimental model and a defective one at that. So uh, it's kind of great because you do get to see you get to you get to see Reed Richards shoot a kid with a gun, his own son. It's kind of again. There's part of me where I'm like, that's is a shocking moment, and it's it's framed in an interesting way, like it really like Basima has it like outside the panels like it so it really is a really interesting frame timeless moment Unfortunately, the thing that sucks is the very next page is. Typical, the team is over melodrama, complete with Ben Grimm like really throwing a hissy in a way that seems like somewhat inappropriate, I think.
0: It it is kind of amazing. So the end of the issue is that something is happening to Franklin. Reed is convinced that he's essentially going to build to an overload. Yeah, And so Reed fires his experimental anti-matter weapon that turns his son into a vegetable. Yeah. This, Uh, again... He he shuts down his mind. Yes. Slowly the alien glow
1: dies, but with it dies the light of intelligence to be replaced by darkness. Again, if they'd had Franklin say one fucking word in any of the previous issues, it would carry so much more weight. But the fact is, there is no difference between Franklin the Vegetable and Franklin the Animal or Franklin the Mineral
0: that we've seen in the previous issues. There just isn't. There's not. But what is interesting is, Sue is justifiably upset. Yes. She, she, she was not consulted in this whatsoever. Yeah. Like, I, I completely buy that. What I buy less is that everyone else just turns their back on Reed as well. Yes. Yeah. It's to the point where Ben says, after what you just did, there can't be a team anymore. This is the end, mister. The end of the Fantastic Four. I'd like to point out as well that Conway is trying to sell this to the end of Fantastic Four so much that the cover says, the end of the Fantastic Four, the name of the story, the end of the Fantastic Four, and the last line of dialogue, the end of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. He's really fucking trying to sell it. and he just doesn't. Cause who believes this is the end of the test?
1: Well, even separate and apart again, the, to me, it's more the fact that everyone gets forced into this crazy reaction, which leaves less space. I mean, I really do love the fact that, um, reed she, she says, you've turned him into a vegetable, your own son. And Reed says, don't you see Sue? He was too powerful. His energy had continued to build. He would have destroyed the world. And she says, but he was your son, Reed. If you never loved me, you should have loved him. Franklin was your son. I love how powerful and painful that is, in part because it's it's not even rational. You know what I mean? Like, it's a very human response. She doesn't even yeah. really hear
0: what he's saying. and I, I, But again, Conway is actually really good at the characters. Mm-hmm. His plotting is ropey as shit. Right. And he keeps making really bad decisions in favor of nostalgia
1: nostalgia
0: you know? or or plot hammering some bad plot Both, hammering. yeah but his character work is great yeah like there really is i you, i would love to have seen in a strange way if there was some way to get 70s conway into today's comic world mm-hmm. where he could spend an issue just doing character work yeah yeah absolutely.: I would have loved to have seen what he could come up with, because there mm-hmm. really is some lovely character stuff in this.. Yeah. What's really interesting as well is you get your last page of 141, which is the team walking away from Reed, and Reed is a broken man. Reed yeah. is clearly upset, like uh, distraught. Mm-hmm. And then you get to 142, which picks up immediately. Mm-hmm. Reed is angry. The, now the artist has changed. Rick, yes. Rich Buckler comes in in one forty two. I should say uh, one forty two, one forty three, one forty four are all one storyline. line. Uh, one forty two is no friend beside him. Number uh, one forty three is the terrible triumph of Doctor Doom. Spoilers: it's a Doctor Doom story. Uh, and one forty four attack. Yes. One forty two brings on Rich Buckler for the first time. Yes. And the splash page is picks up exactly where one forty one left off, mm-hmm. but. Buckler is a much less subtle artist when it comes to character acting than than Buscema. and Bushema's is not a particularly subtle artist. But his his read looks angry at everyone mm-hmm. for walking away, and it it dramatically changes the scene. Interesting that that could be the
1: case. I I do think because you later see him start pounding on shit and basically like feeling like he's ruined his life. You know, he's like, uh, so I think he's angry at himself because uh, the thing, I, I sort of agree with you, but I kind of like the way he's holding his hands or the position. There's something that is strangely, uh, I saw both the anger, the anger that arises out of the grief. So it worked better for me. Oh
0: no, I, I see, I can imagine why he's angry, but I, for me, the moment landed much better at the end of 141. Yeah. Where he is just, like, he is not angry. He has nothing left besides Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, exactly. You and know? Yeah. and
0: so, to, to then go with like, I know, but then he's also angry at himself. I much prefer a Reed who is not a man of action mm-hmm. in this situation. Oh, I much yeah. prefer a Reed who is not like, I, you know, if only I dodged harder, but mm-hmm. instead was just was out of options. Yes. That's a much more interesting emotional place for him to be at that moment for me. I, I, I think so, too. It's, it's kind of sad that that it pivots away so quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: it it is actually
1: a shame here because I think there's uh, one of the moments that I both like and I'm a little weirded out by is on page seven. You you basically cut to see Ben Grimm sort of storm off. Find the note from Alicia where we haven't talked about the subplot that's been developing where she ends up in a mysterious European country to get her sight restored. Although I don't remember if we remember that part. I think we do. Um no,
0: we do. That's that's yeah. established in okay. the I think just the previous issue, I think it's just in one forty one it 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 comes out. Yeah. But it's which is another super interesting subplot, because this is the second time in two years, if not a year, mm-hmm. where curing blindness is brought up, mm-hmm. which on one hand makes sense. It's a world of super science. Yeah. You know, why not? On the other hand, there's something really strange about the idea that so many people are convinced that they can cure blindness.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't given it much thought, but you're right. Well, I, I think it's more the, again, kind of uh <sighs> Again, sort of like the the weird, like, we've given up on the idea of curing Ben. So we're going to go sure, to the next we, level, we, okay, which is curing Alicia, you know? Yeah.
0: And, and the sad thing is the, the curing blindness here, and I think later in Marvel 2 and 1, because it comes up a bunch of times there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never looked at from Alicia's point of view. It's right. instead of women in refrigerators, it's women in refrigerators for Alicia's blindness. It's yeah. all a manipulation to get the thing into an adventure. Yes. And when it never works out, because it invariably doesn't work out, mm-hmm. Alicia's response is almost always, oh, it's okay. And yeah. Ben is the one going, oh, I wish it had worked out, honey. Yeah. And yeah. it's, there's something really, it just sits very uneasily with me. Oh, absolutely. That, that, that we return to this and it, it's, and Alicia's a prop.
1: Yeah, and it's very problematic. She is, She is a prop. Even this far in, The character is so paper thin in a way that's such a shame because it really is a Alicia is a character that I I want to like and is sort of an interesting I mean, it's sort of a it's such a they just no one has any interest in taking her beyond the soap opera stick slash, like you said, the the motivator to, to get to get Ben into a story. It's kind of a bummer. Anyway, page seven. Reed flips out. Medusa says, and it's a shame because, again, Conway, who really does have some very lovely character beats. uh, I don't think this is one of his better ones because everything is so hurried. Medusa stops Reed from tearing shit up. And she says, stop it, Reed. I said, stop it. I won't let you punish yourself this way. Please, let's get out of here. Go somewhere for dinner. You need to get away, Reed. Please let me help you. And so, and then it's like, and so an hour later after Reed has calmed himself and the Red tressed Human has arranged reservations, I'm just like, what? Like, so there is a (laughs) Also, again, sort of the same way that I'm like, Sue was having a secret lesbian swinger thing. The fact that you see Reed and Medusa getting dressed in front of each other even though facing opposite directions, even though she's just adjusting her hair and he's just adjusting his stuff. No, it's it's true.
0: The the art definitely suggests something else. Yeah.
1: The art, the art is some level of like, I can help you. Okay. Reed's like, okay, I feel a little bit more relaxed. Um, which is, I'm relieved that they aren't going there, you know, because again, I really like Medusa in these issues and I don't really see how that could be handled in any way that didn't just come off as really weird and yet it's sort of fun I'm sort of like oh eh, God bless you
0: it's It's weird subtext it is fascinating that there is that subtext though because what I like so much about Medusa in these issues is that she is the grown up yeah that she's the one who who can step outside the soap opera Mm -hmm. and instead just be like like Reed you need to to get away you need to take a break it is healthy for you to do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for the art to suggest that there's this ulterior motive of like, finally, I can make my move on reads hours after he has shot his child.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. There is a little bit of that, which is sort of, it is, it's strange. I'm so relieved again what they don't do with Medusa is such a relief, and yet weirdly enough, it's precisely when they get to that level that's so mature that it's kind of like, "Oh, it would be kind of nice to see someone make a ridiculous behavior of like oh okay i I know what will help you out kind of thing and again just as it's just as just as well that we move on to the appearance of uh Darkoth the demon. Okay. Darkoth the
0: Death Demon.
1: Thank you. Darkoth the Death Demon, who uh, I kind of dig and I kind of don't. Part of me is uh, do you, people... Do you not dig him because there's really very little to him? Well, that is the problem. There should be more. And as a kid, I remember thinking there was more. I might just be confusing it with some later
0: appearances when they bring the character back in the future. But do they bring the character back? I was going to ask that because I remember this character being around for more issues. So when he uh, quote unquote dies at the end of the storyline, again, spoilers, everyone, I was surprised Mm because I was like, Oh, I, I thought he was around for longer. I believe he does.
1: I believe they come back. Both he and Doom come back for like another go round. Maybe under Thomas's watch. I don't remember. And I could be mistaken in that, but I'm pretty sure I'm not because there's some more sequences. Anyway, Darkoth to me is interesting. People who read the... I don't know if I've talked about it as much on the Wait What podcast, but certainly if you follow the website, I did a huge uh read through of rich buckler's uh deathlock the demolisher of which i'm a big fan and uh, buckler's a difficult character for me because generally i'm a, i'm a fan of his work he also d- draws the first couple of issues of uh jungle action uh the the panther's rage storyline with don mcgregor that is like a huge seminal event in the shaping of my comic book consciousness so I'm in the tank for Buckler, sort of, kind of. And it's interesting seeing him in these issues where, on the one hand, A, he's he some of this stuff looks very raw. B, except for the periods where suddenly he is really swiping from Kirby heavily in a way that is impressively shameless. uh, And C, seeing stuff where it's like, oh, he's kind of... This is... Deathlock is a cyborg with, like, awesome gloves and awesome shoulder globes. And so is Darkoth the Death Demon. And I don't think that that is uh, much of a surprise, basically. Let's put it that way. So I'm kind of interested in Darkoth. Even though he's so disappointing, incredibly disappointing, I'm I'm also fascinated the way in which he seems like a... Uh, progenitor of of Buckler's Deathlock. Um, so that maybe doesn't make me the best person to summarize these issues. I forget, was I summarizing them? Were you summarizing them? Well,
0: well, I was trying to summarize them in, in a vaguely haphazard way. Um, okay, let's summarize them super quickly. In the Balkans, the thing is attacked by Darkoth who, uh, it will later be revealed, is uh, working for Dr. Dream. Meanwhile, in this first con- uh, conflict, he basically beats up Ben and then runs away. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, Human Torch and Wyatt are flying around, going back to Metro University because they are just trying to get away because the Fantastic Four is over. Remember everyone, it's done. It's it's finished. They run into Coach Thorne, Jeff's favourite, oh. who says that uh, while he feels that what has happened to Franklin is tragic, he feels for Reed. Finally, someone is being relatively empathetic. Johnny is disgusted, however, and just flies off. Meanwhile, Sue takes the now apparently vegetable, but I don't think that actually means what Jerry Conway thinks it means, mm-hmm. given how he's being portrayed, uh, Franklin back to the ranch with Carol and someone I'm going to call Bob. Bob. Yeah, Is he Bob? He is. I think we might be making Bob. Um, that is a relatively, like, Just to let you know they're still around sequence. Because then we cut back to Ben, who's in the waiting room while Alicia is having her operation to restore her eyesight. Turns out, though, she's not there. Mm -hmm. Ben goes to check in the operating room, and it is empty. Aside from the return of Darkoth, the Death Demon. There is a rematch. The rematch does not go particularly well for, really, anyone. Darkoth is defeated, but in the process, Ben uh, collapses only to be met by, strangely, uh, Alicia, who s- seems like she might be seeing, even though this is never quite explained, but she seems to run towards him and know it's him, even though he's collapsed. Not quite sure how that happens, but that's all right. We then cut back to Reed's date with, with Medusa. Turns out Coach Thorne is there. He might have mentioned that earlier on when he was talking to the torch, but let's move past that, because guess who's having dinner with them? It's Dr. Doom, everyone. That's right. It's it's an 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 alumni alumni meeting.
2: meeting.
0: Mm -hmm. I I do love that. I love that Doom turns up the alumni meeting and it's like, I organize this, you guys, because I hate you and I want to humiliate you, which I swear to God, people, is actually the plot.
2: Yes, it
1: really is. It's again.
0: It's what has happened.
1: mm Mm-hmm. Sort of again, the same way that Annihilus is a uh, little is a, a nerd on a planet of horrible jocks in the negative zone, Dr. Doom literally has called court, Coach Thorne in for no other reason than just to shit on him and rub his nose in it because of all the ways that Coach Thorne was miserable to him back in college that is never elucidated on at all, because Jerry Conway's like, "You know what I'm talking about." You've got yeah. my back.
0: Yeah. You you guys were nerds too, right? You yeah. know what it's like. He's a jock. He probably made your life misery. Come on. Exactly. You're, you're, you're with Dr. Doom here. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Doom confronts everyone and there is a fight uh, to open up 143. 143, the issue where Joe Nitz takes a break. Uh, Frank Giocoa is inking. And in doing so, I think really bringing out the Kirby swipes mm-hmm. in this issue. It, it this is Buckler's first issue was relatively close to Bishema, I think. Mm-hmm. But his yeah. second issue, he's in full-on I'm swiping from Kirby modes to the point where in the second page, you already have a close-up of Doctor Doom's eyes. Yes. Yeah. Which is an amazingly Kirby panel. Yeah, for uh, sure. There, there is a confrontation that ends with Crystal and Reed defeated, captured, mm-hmm. uh, and dumped in a mysterious location uh, Doom then takes the coach and his wife to a room where both the thing and Darkoth are being held in heavy machinery Just the wife, interestingly enough Oh, that's right, because the he's zapped uh, yeah, he, but not yeah. killed him he says mm-hmm. I have only stunned your husband Victor, even Victor Von Doom would find no honour in slaying a helpless fool Mm -hmm. Quite why he then takes the wife through and is like, here's my hidden fortress, which he he actually does. On the process, he also says, this entire city block was built to my specifications years ago. Just in case you're wondering how Dr. Doom manages to have a secret base in New York City. Mm -hmm. He just always had a city block there just in case. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for planning ahead. I, I kind of dig it. I kind of dig it, you know. So. That he never mentioned it before. But this yeah. is also – this is the second issue where uh, Reed wakes up and thinks that Sue's there, which, again, I find remarkably sweet. Uh, you the- know, at least it helped when when there was actually someone in front of him that he could think <laughs> yeah. was another okay. person. Okay. In this issue, he does wake up with Dr. Doom behind him and he goes, Sue? Yeah. Eh? No, it's not Sue. No, it's Dr. Doom.
1: It's Dr. Doom. <laughs> so come on there. Maybe Reed has some serious eyewear problems that he's got to fucking work out.
0: Oh, maybe Sue sounds like Dr. Doom.
1: Jeff, that would be great. It's, he talks with an, with like a crazily soft, your oath means nothing to me, Richards. See, you and I, your friends are completely in going, my this,
0: power. I was going the other direction <laughs> where it's we're like a really severe like Eastern European accent and like also like, works. Shouting. Yeah. So uh, this issue is incredibly padded out, I have to say. Uh... I I was telling you pre-recording that this storyline just defeated me. Mm -hmm. I was reading through the issues and I was fine. And this storyline just defeated me because especially this issue, 143, is slow as shit. It is full of exposition. It is the expositionary issue. There's no real plot development. But you do get – actually, the the plot development is – Doom also captures Johnny and Wyatt. That is the extent of it.
1: Well, and he sort of he's like, I've got an evil plan, which is uh, I've What's got a, a disco ball the- slash a uh, robot candy apple that I'm going to shoot into space that's going to program everyone to worship me and here's I'm going to show you how blindly people will have no willpower I'm going to make my two guards shoot one another right in front of everyone and great part is Reed Richards who's right there being good lord man no will do nothing except just sort of hang out and it might be wearing like I oh, don't know. I'm not exactly sure what's happening with him. There's also a great sequence where, once again, I wonder if Johnny Storm isn't genuinely unhinged in the way that he's frequently portrayed. he almost portrayed. kills Wyatt? Yes. Yeah, almost kills Wyatt, more or less doesn't notice, is more or less saying, literally says, how the heck am I supposed to feel when... And then notices his friend is falling to his death, lands on a barn, and only miraculously manages to survive because he's awesome. But going the... to
0: say, "Honestly, didn't mean to." So you know. Yeah, of
1: course, of course he didn't. Johnny is just a lunatic who doesn't mean to do anything. Uh, I'm. I love the idea. There's a. There's a cutaway panel of Doom's Fortress that I swear to God is just Rich Buckler swiping an a early building. Kirby cutaway of the right? Baxter building and exactly. just retitling it. I love that. I mean, and I sort of do love the idea that basically uh, Doom has more or less created his own Baxter building and his own little block of New York for his own dumb operation. And well, I sort but... of like the idea that Darkoth was sort of supposed to be his version of, the... of Ben Grimm, yeah. you know?
0: So you get the, the uh, you get Doom saying that he is going to explain Darkoth's origin to him, which sets up the the final pages of the issue, uh, which is the Dark Orth frees Medusa Reed and Ben, because it turns out he is not who Darkoth thought. I just want to draw your attention, Jeff, to the final page of this issue, Dark explaining it with the drawing of Dark. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, right? I, yeah, of course I know. <laughs> What's up to, to his face? face? What is up to his face? Why didn't no one fix that? My <laughs> worst. The worst part is is this is probably the fixed version. Christ
1: only knows what it looked like before, but it is great. It is great. It literally look Darkoth is delivering a tremendous amount of exposition while the right side of his face tries to slide off his body. And it is it's, awesome.
0: It's astounding. It really is. <laughs> but look to that page. of tone. Wait, his eyes literally don't light up. They don't like one is significantly lower than the other. It is so
1: good. Meanwhile, let's face it again. And Conway, not really being with the plotting, Darkoth finds out that he was previously uh, that he is not he believed himself to be Darkoth, the living death demon of legend. the man called Doom portrayed himself as my master, and because he was his the first face I saw, I believed him. I was wrong. Doom revealed to me the truth that I am but one of his former aides, converted through chemistry and the work of the vibration device into this mockery you see before you, but I know otherwise. For better or for worse, real or false, I am Darkoth, and Doom must pay for the indignities fostered upon me. Now, my
0: problem is, why the fuck would Doom tell him that? That is still one of those ridiculous... Why? Why? Also, none of this makes sense. Doom has developed a vibration device, as he calls it, that will essentially melt people's sense of self-worth. Vibrate it out of their brains. Again, comic book science, let's just go with it. Sure. Does he use it on his accursed enemies? No. He has them. He's captured them. Yep. Does he use it on them? No, he doesn't. Does he instead tell his trusted death demon that he's been lying to him all along and then leave him to go and uh, rescue the heroes? Yes, he does. He does. He does.
1: Is this Doctor Doom's clever attempt to trap everyone? No, no, it's not. So that brings us to issue one hundred forty-four, Attack, which is which opens up again one of those books I had as a kid. Yes, I, I read spread. this as a kid as well. Oh, did you? Ah uh, man. And I gotta say, I enjoyed it back then. And here, uh I really dig pages two and three, which is a double page spread, once again. Read playing Human Bridge, this time to Thing, Darkoth, and Medusa, helpfully holding a uh, torch or, or flashlight with her hair. But I love the drawing of the sewers uh, below them that it are just, I don't know, the sort of thing that as a kid you spend a lot of time staring at, and at least for me, being like, wow, that looks so cool. Um, I really like the first three
0: pages of this book. I don't know about the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> rereading it. There, there's, there's a lot of stuff here that is, is wacky as hell, including the appearance of the Seeker, who is a robot that Doom has sent to retrieve his prisoners. Uh, the reason they're in the sewers, by the way, is they have crept out underneath Doom's New York base uh, on the way back to the Baxter building. Yeah. They defeat the Seeker. Uh, the Seeker is, I mean, it's, it's a, Pretty generic design, I would say, but one thing is important to know for later development: mm-hmm. Seeker is green and scaly and muscular yet yeah. has no tail. Darkoth is purple and has a tail mm-hmm. this will come become important later, will it yes, it will jeff I, I we'll get there soon we'll get oh, okay. soon enough uh meanwhile, while all this is going on uh doom has. Moved on to taunting Wyatt and the Fantastic uh, and uh, the Human Torch rather, yes. Wyatt and the Human Torch, because in the three issues of this story, Doom just taunts different members of the team, like he's rotating through the team to taunt them. Yeah, that that that's his entire MO. He doesn't really want to uh, enslave the worlds. He just wants to go. Ha, 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 got you now, haven't I? Look at me, Doom. You, you you're in a tube. I'm Doom. What you gonna do?
1: Again, what you gonna do when they doom for you, Von Doom, Von Doom, what you're gonna do. <laughs> anyway, My God, so...
0: this entire episode is worth it for that of Lola,
1: <laughs> So uh, one of the things that's amazing is not only does he taught White Wingfoot and Johnny Storm who can't flame on, but then Doom turns around and says, Do you see Thorn? to coach useless. To defy me is useless. Oh, I'm sorry, I meant boring. To defy me is useless, for in the end <laughs> Doom will God. succeed. <laughs> And not you, not your wife, nor Alicia Masters' beloved Ben Grimm can do anything to stop me.
0: I'm not Wouldn't quite that be sure how he's. If
1: it was Coach Stard's wife that did something to stop him. It really should be. She was like, uh, what about a hando? He's like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, all right. Hando from a rando uh, in Orlando. So I'm getting punchy. There's no way we're going to make it through these final issues.
0: I don't know. I just don't know. I really don't that is know. Bit, but we should never record this this late on a Thursday night ever again, because <laughs> Jeff's just lost his shit. Um... The first bit about a comic book with a vibro bomb. I feel like I've been
1: incredibly restrained. You have a sequence where the thing and Oth start punching each other because why? They just don't like each other. Which is kind of refreshing. Then Reed stops them, tells them that they have to stop acting like children, that he's put up with about as much of it as he's going to take, and then he's just proves that this point. Still to
0: go right now.
1: And he does, because he disappears for the rest of the issue in a way that I, makes no sense to me. So
0: well, uh, I forget so much to... of this issue does not make sense. Okay, so this is the part that, that where I was pointing out that one character has a tail and one does not. The Seeker shows up back in Doctor Doom's base and turns out to be Darkoth, who has a tail. But when he's a Seeker, he doesn't have a tail. Where does the tail go? See, the weird part is, I,
1: and this is going to be weird, but okay, you have, see, you have the Seeker coming at Doom, and you see an extinguished Johnny Storm right behind him, right? Right. Doom turns and blasts the Seeker and says, see what reward is due to traitors who, and then you see Darkoth, and again, this is weird, but he is standing behind a pile of rubble. I assume that he broke through the wall after the Seeker got destroyed.
0: That he who betrayed you was not the mindless seeker, but Dark Earth who seeks revenge in oh. the dialogue suggests that Dark Oath was disguised mm. as a seeker. That's, that's probably true. You're right.
1: Okay. Uh, that, that makes no sense whatsoever because Dark Oath also doesn't really seem to have hands or arms, nor does it really make much point why Doom, <laughs> upon seeing Dark Oath, after runs defeating away. the seeker, yeah, just runs away. It's kind of like – um, Also,
0: why did, why did Dark Oath disguise himself as a seeker?
1: Yeah. I don't know. The like, answer is Richard Rich Buckler.
0: None of it makes this. sense. The end yeah. of this makes sense. Also, what does not make sense is Doom manages to launch his Vibration Ray. And yeah. you see him actually brainwashing some people somewhere. It doesn't actually say where it is, for that matter. It just yes. shows some people somewhere. This is never, ever addressed again. Well, it's. I I feel like it
1: sort of is, and this is going to sound weird. I could be totally wrong, and I didn't have the time because of how we ran out of time, uh, the, all these issues. I didn't have a chance to check it, but I could swear, you probably maybe vaguely remember, there's a later issue of Supervillain Team-Up. Uh, written by Bill Mantlo where Dr. Doom has taken over the entire world and everyone serves him. And I could swear that it's a combination of, he had launched the satellite that sort of like whipped everyone's brains. He never got, he never gets in this issue to do the second stage that he's talking about in supervillain team up. He unleashes the gas that is going to make everyone a slave. I think or maybe the two stories are just so goddamn identical.
0: The literally. two stories are, are identical. Okay. Because this actually says, The conquest of mankind begins across the world. People are struck by strange radiation. Their eyes go blank. Their minds strain of thought. This is actually happening in this. Wow, okay. Well, okay. Okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. It never gets fixed. <laughs> right. <laughs> because the, the climax of this issue is that Darkoth chases Doom... Into, he didn't even chase him into a spaceship the building itself turns out into a spaceship and as Doom flies away he flies towards the satellite the satellite explodes with Doom and Darkoth on board the, uh, the building slash spaceship but no sense of well that undoes all the, the raids that they've already been shot because earlier on when he did it to the soldiers it was pretty instantaneous Yeah, yeah right? Yep. So uh, what happens? Dude, the there's controls. so
1: much. You're like, how how does Coach Thorpe the thing, Alicia, Coach Thorpe's wife, and Wyatt Wingfoot get out of a fucking building before it shoots into space, which they somehow managed to do. No, but, and but then but
0: at least at least they address it. Come on, we better get out pronto. Sure, it's very strange. I mean, all we can really guess is that it takes a long time from Doom pressing the button and the building shaking to the building taking off.
1: Then you cut uh, to Reed and Medusa looking on a viewer being like, gone, both Doom ship and the bomb vanished in
0: an instant. Where were they? You know what I mean? Like, well, where the fuck did they go with them? If we follow your theory, they were probably having an thoroughfare somewhere. Yeah.
1: I, I, I'm only to subscribe to that theory.
0: Okay, so 145
1: and 146. Are we actually even going to wrap this <laughs> wait, up wait, or wait. should we just you've bring them back not, next you've time? You've not
0: even finished 144. Oh, God, 144 ends. is done. Yeah. 144 ends with, it is for some reason snowing after the explosion. Yeah. And the thing points out that, oh, that's right. All of the story started off with Alicia trying to get her sight back. Yeah. And he's so sad, he just walks away because it's all his fault. Yes. Never mind the fact that Alicia went there herself. Yeah. Before Ben even knew about it, it just exists to cause Ben angst. Yeah. There's, you, ben and I like Ben Grimm a lot, but fucking yeah. Ben Grim. Yeah it
1: it it is the world's most gratuitous self-pitying thing walk away that I think we've had yet which is really saying something because there see, have been some pretty gratuitous walkaways. we've seen a lot we
0: mm-hmm. we've, we've <laughs> really seen a lot um let's go through 145 and 146 super quickly nightmare in the snow and then doomsday colon 200 degrees below which i feel should be like a terrible 1990s pop album <laughs> Pro- probably. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it's 200 degrees below the new album by Doomsday. Actually, it'd be the other way around. It? I think it would be. Yeah, well, 200. It'd be Doomsday, below. the album by yeah. 200 degrees below. Uh, and these are these two issues are drawn by Russ Andrew again. He returns, and while the combination of Sinet and Andrew is slightly better this go round, uh, mm. it's again Sinet's Sinet thinks just smother Andrew.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of strange. They they smother, but they never quite manage to do the right stuff. Like I I dig Sinet generally, and I think Sinet seems to really dig the the Human Torch because there's a there was a lot of Human Torch in his little fill in issue. Human Torch is front and center here, uh, drawn with you know some really interesting musculature. He's an interesting, <laughs> he's kind of visually interesting. Unfortunately, again, you get situations like. People, we won't beat around the bush. This somehow is a fill-in issue that became two fill-in issues. I don't understand. And
0: again, feels like a Star Trek story. Yeah. Well. Let, let's yeah. get back to a running theme in this episode. This mm-hmm. really does feel like another Star Trek story. The Human Tarch and Medusa have crash-landed. The
1: shuttlecraft has landed on a alien planet, the Himalayas,
0: where the... <laughs>
1: The captain,
0: uh, and where they are slowly freezing to death. I love the fact that Medusa is wearing a coat but still has bare legs because, of course, comics. Um, They are attacked by abominable snowmen and it turns out that the the abominable snowmen are pretty fucking abominable because they are evil and they are ready to kill the human torch in Medusa to protect their secret. Yes. Uh, I, I should also say that the reason they were going there, it's revealed in the flashback, is uh, Majuza has essentially been summoned back to the Great Refuge. Johnny accompanies her because Johnny can't get Crystal out of his mind, which is subplot laying for the future. It, it, yes. It's laying ground for, for a few issues hence, but also feels really weird after the way that they split a year mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, it's taken him a year to decide that he can't get Crystal out of his mind. So, you know... He,
1: yeah, it's kind of a shame to see Johnny like head right back to this particular track on the LP. It's interesting also that uh, he w- Medusa's like, I'm going back. Do you want to go with me? And he's like, thanks, but no thanks. And then they're in the jet flying in the pogo plane. And he's like, I guess you're more persuasive than you look, Medusa. So now that I'm on the way to the Great Refuge with you, will you tell me why you wanted me along? As you said yourself, I'm not exactly cheerful company these days. I know, Johnny. I was hoping we'd talk about that while we look out. And now let me ask you, Graham, because I admit I sped through these issues pretty quickly. Do we find out why Medusa no. asked him? Okay.
0: That's what no, I thought. Don't. I was like, what the fuck? So Well, but there there's a bunch of that. I mean, if mm-hmm. you, you could even go back to the last storyline. Darkoth's whole thing is really out of Jerry Conway's ass. Yeah. Like he's doomed. There's a point made, like, I will tell your origin, which then happens off-panel. And his origin is essentially, you were a nameless minion that I turned into this cyborg. Eh, why? Who knows? Like, so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of that. And so, sure, you don't find out what's going on. I'm presuming you'll find out in future issues, because we know that we're heading back to Great Refuge as as readers. Because you and I both know what's happening just a few issues from now. 150 Uh, Mm -hmm. is the... Spoilers everyone uh wedding of crystal and quicksilver so, so That's right um nonetheless currently they are the two heroes are trapped in the Himalayas with the weirdly evolved uh abominable stone men who it turns out are weirdly evolved for a reason mm-hmm. uh, they they have been manipulated by a a stranger who how, how would you describe him Jeff well, I
1: technically, I have to say, I would describe him as clearly a lost member of Kunlun. Like, he's, <laughs> he's well, not...
0: An iconography, sure.
1: Yeah, the iconography is there, the, the vague location is there, but he's he basically comes out of a monastery where the monks were vegetarian, forbidden to eat the flesh of the goats to survive. They bought rice from the farmers in the distant valleys... Uh, but they had to make this journey, which few could survive. So the <coughs> master is a guy who essentially comes across the snowmen in their caves, gets attacked by them, kicks their ass because, of course, he's from Kunlun, and so therefore he has amazing kung fu abilities. Then he shows them a mirror.
0: When you say it like this, it's so it almost makes up for the fact that I was like, I wanted you to say he's a terrible Asian stereotype. But yes. when, when you keep arguing that he's from Kunlun, that's fine. But I, I really, um like he is just generic wise yeah. asian monk yeah Which exactly. let's be fair marvel is not short of yeah yep yep absolutely you know, marvel loves the idea that after a certain age which for marvel seems to be 500 because all of these characters <laughs> are also weirdly long lived <laughs> um all asian men become all knowing masters yes. of kung fu yeah uh, and have some sort of magical and or super science abilities. Yes. Yep.
1: Absolutely. So uh, meanwhile, by contrast, you have you have the abominable snowman who at one point are actually hanging out drinking beers when Medusa and Johnny try and uh, escape and then stumble across them and are like, eh, let's try and beat the crap out of them. Uh, end up like thrashing these uh, poor snowman creatures who really do have goony faces. Let's face it; it is the design is not the strongest, but they do have like an incredible super freeze ray as driven by Ternak or Tenrac or Trukiproc, whatever. Anyway. It is an incredibly slow beam because Medusa and Johnny are frozen. You see them freezing and they're still hanging out talking about how they're freezing and soon to be entirely
0: frozen. And is there nothing that can happen? Well, also, it's so slow that they start getting frozen on the last page of 145 and it then takes one, two, three, four, five, five pages of 146 for them to fail to freeze.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So a
0: very slow freeze
1: Yeah. Very and, very
0: slow freeze rate.
1: Yeah. So so slow and so inept that basically all you all that it really takes to break it is uh, Johnny getting pissed off enough that he then suddenly has more fire, which is practically I don't know. I mean, is not good comic book
0: science. Let's put it there, that there, way. But none of this is. They are then. They make their escape from the Abominable snowman only to meet a, an Abominable Snowwoman who follows the rules of the Warcraft movie. While the males of the species look like terrible monsters, and the females of the species look like attractive human women That's with right. Pointy, with pointy ears. Uh, she silently beckons them to meet the mythical old Asian monk who's like, I'm still alive, you guys funny story i died but then science brought me back to life it's all cool i will give you a macguffin to end the story quickly because really where are we going with it i'll tell you where we're going the thing has shown up why just because the thing has shown up all right we want the thing he's popular why can't he just show up yep while the thing is clobbering some snowman the human torch rushes back into action and joins the fray. Medusa, she's not really joining the fray. She's there with, I guess, a a a weapon that is going to be used, but she doesn't quite get around to use. No, but- she does use it. That's what turns it.
1: It turns on. What happens is is that she turns on the ray that the master has given her the directions to use the the weapon. The problem is is that the
0: machinery. Oh, I, you're right. I thought the thing yeah. knocked her into the the. Knocked the villain into the the weapon, and he turned it on. But you're right; she turns yeah. it on. She she she. It's
1: already in operation, and it won't shut off. They don't need it. They say because the the ball game's over, as Ben puts it. But it turns on and has the strange, terrifying effect of turning the abominable snow people into regular That's human sure beings. Men. <laughs> yes, men whose flesh must be warmed by fire and so therefore they can now enter the real world without having to freeze it in order to be able to have their their kingdom. Great, say Ben Johnny and Medusa. Goodbye. We're leaving you in your frozen cave. Have fun getting out of there. We're you leaving you fucks. in your frozen cave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> clothes. We, yeah, no clothes, no real way out, no vehicles, because we just crushed the few that you had and we're going back to ours. And we've learned a valuable lesson a valuable lesson about soul and spirit. And that soul and spirit has told me that these two issues are the worst two issues of comic book ever based on a coloring book ever. The end.
0: Jeff loved these issues.
1: I, I really did. I did. They, like they
0: are no, but they are. They're they're kind of lousy. However, yeah. I think they're actually on par, if not slightly better, than the Miracle Man issues. So, <laughs> which says a lot about how I feel about these issues. We have yeah. just relatively sped through thirteen issues. Uh, you might have noticed, listeners, that we were uh, we were speeding through them. We did this last time as well, and part of it is these are dogs. See, I, Jeff, I know you, you're like, hey, there's some good stuff here and there is some good stuff, but there's so little good stuff compared with everything else that's in the issues that yeah. these are dogs.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I, as a as a kid, we'll see. And it's we're heading right up on one fifty, so uh which I think is I think Conway leaves right after. So I could be which I could be wrong on that. But yeah, it, it, it appears that what we had was um a few few sort of interesting bits of characterization. Probably the most sophisticated uh, Marvel female heroine that uh, has popped up in a Marvel comic ever, uh, at least to that point. Um, and yeah, just a lot of terrible, terribleness. And a lot of really inept sort of, um, again, nobody really never needed to see Gregory Gideon again. Uh, we didn't or, need to or see or the Miracle Man or the Miracle Man exactly, exactly those those characters. Or, or,
0: are... or let's be honest, I think we could have done without seeing Annihilus again as well, right? Yeah, I think so. The, 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 the actual the villains of this run are by far the, the superheroing of this run is by far the weakest part. I genuinely wish we'd seen more of the character moments, which is is strong, yeah. but the, the yeah the villains are woof.
1: Well, even the stuff with Annihilus, I have to say, one of the things, as I was reading it, I was like, you know, I, and admittedly, I'm a little fogged on this because I had that issue as a kid, but I'm like, oh, right, the origin of Annihilus. I never needed the origin of Annihilus. Like, when we first see him in, in the FF Annual, and we proceed forward from that, it's kind of like, you you kind of don't, he just doesn't need sure. one, you know? Just,
0: he especially doesn't need that origin. Yes, yeah, exactly. I was a weak little ant. Yeah. Then exactly. I got an alien helmet, and it told me I was a magical ant, and I decided to be a dictator. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, like it's... really, what? What does that add to anything? <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Especially it... because for me, it really is close to the the Overmind origin. Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it feels like it hits the same beats. Mm-hmm. So there really is minimal needs for that for that at all.
1: Well, the thing that I... Also, there, there's something... Annihilus' first appearance, he's kind of a creepy super scientist of the Negative Zone, plus he's got mega powers. Again, he's he's a weird, shadowy version of Reed Richards. The origin that he has now takes that away, you know? He's not a genius of any kind, really. He inherited it all from this alien helmet, you know? There's a weird, I don't know, reverse colonialism going on there where it's like the only thing that's great about Annihilus is whatever the superior race was able to, to shipwreck and leave behind for him, you know? And it's kind of, it, it just, it diminishes the character. Uh, it diminishes his effectiveness as essentially uh, another weirdo anti-Reed Richards um, and just doesn't give you anything, uh, our... yeah. Unless you like, un- unless you wanted to. Every time you see him, just go like nerd. You know what I mean? Like calling him a nerdlinger is fun, but it just really—it's not fun enough to mitigate the damage done to the character.
0: Is it fun? Now, I guess we know which side of the culture wars Europe. you were should, on. You should—you should try yeah. it. You should try it, Graham. Just try it. Just am not going to call anyone a nerdling. Just, just say it. Just, just, yeah. just Just say nerd. just,
1: just say Just say it. Nerd. You'll feel <laughs> it's not, it's not nerd.
0: You'll not better. It's to try to yeah, to try 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 to be said. you uh, to you, you beloved, one thirty six, one thirty seven. You do love the the weird Gonzo. Roy Thomas is working out his childhood via Star Trek episodes,ness of of the the nineteen fifties flashback of those issues. Oh man, it's great! But,
1: it's a critique of it too. I, Graham, I just I don't know. Okay, I I totally get that you can't you can't give it up for those special issues, even in a weird asterisk kind of way.
0: No, I like I I do give it up in a special asterisk way. Okay, but I I don't know. It feels. I feel so removed from the culture that informs it. Mm -hmm. Like for me, my takeaway is more, Oh, it's like Greece than anything else. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, no, I do. I get that. So it doesn't, it doesn't resonate for me in the same way at all. Um, But those are nonetheless the highlights of of these, these last 13 issues, which this is, especially when Buckler comes on and starts swiping Kirby so shamelessly. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. this is a a comic that has been made by people who grew up reading Fantastic Four and are far too aware of the history of the title.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. And and I think our they are themselves trapped, you know. I can't tell to what extent their desire to tell new FF stories is being um sort of sidelined by the necessities of keeping what what they think the fans desire of an an FF story or to what extent they themselves as fans need to put things into the FF title you know to make it feel like they're writing FF stories
0: but what's super interesting is while you've got the nostalgia of the villains and of the adventures you have the anti-nostalgia of what's going on with Reed and Sue yes you know, it's 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 very strange. Uh, balance isn't the right word. Very strange mix.
1: Yeah, it's a very it's a mix. It definitely is. And Johnny too. Let's not forget. I mean, before they roll it back, they're kind of looking at somebody who's kind of like staring down the barrel of having thrown away his life on being a superhero. You know, in a in a way that the other characters didn't. And and didn't he never really examined? And is getting a chance to see Dorian Wyatt Wingfoot be adults in a way that he's kind of realizing he's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but that only gets touched on, and then suddenly we're back to like, oh god, it's Crystal. I'm just so messed up over Crystal. It's like, yeah, it's uh, it's
0: very very frustrating to see. See, it actually looked like it's going somewhere, yeah. and then with uh, one forty-five that just gets dropped. It doesn't even get rolled back as much as it just does not get mentioned again. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a frustrating bunch of issues. Uh, and next time everyone, we're going to do more frustrating issues and we're going to do, we're going to do another 13 because if we do another 13, Jeff, then the Mm. episode after that is another of those, uh, new beginning things. The next 13 issues actually wrap up pretty much all the dangling storylines that are going on right now. So, okay, yeah, that's we'll a- be doing 147 through 159. 147 uh, through 159. Wow. You just wait. There's a bunch of stuff in there and lots of it is not good. This is where I say we are online at Wait where you will find show notes for this episode, for every episode of Baxter Building, and every episode of Wait What. There's also going to be written posts by myself, by Mr. Jeff Lester, and by Mr. Matthew Terrell. We are also on Twitter at Wait what Podcast. Jeff's on Twitter solo at Lizziebast L-E-Z-Y-B-E-S-T-I-D. am on Twitter solo at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M-E-E. I've lost track of my. You life. almost kept going too. I <laughs> you know? Thank you. I'm done. Um, we are on Tumblr. Weightwatchpods.tumblr.com. We are available on iTunes, on Stitcher. Please leave comments there so that people can find us and enjoy us. Apparently, that's the thing that happens if you leave comments, and more people are likely to find you. So, yeah. do that. Why don't you spread the word? Uh, and we are a Patreon-supported podcast. Uh, Baxter Building in particular exists purely because of the Patreon supporters. So thank you very much to everyone who has been doing that. And this is where I pass it to Mr. Jeffrey Lester.
1: Yes. Which is so kind of you, Graham, because we definitely owe our thanks to the crew over at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast, as well as special thanks to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, as well as to all 124 supporters on our Patreon. As Graham said, you guys make this all possible, and we are uh, incredibly grateful.
0: We love you, you crazy bastards. (laughs) Uh, we are going to be doing a regular rate what next week, and it is going to be answering questions that have been emailed in from our listeners, uh, oh people who are potentially suicidal. Because I don't know how many questions we're going to get through, but we're going to try and get through them all. Uh, you could still try and email some, I guess. At, uh, yeah, podcast at gmail dot com. Yeah, sure. We'll take more. Yeah, yeah. by all means. Um, but yes, that's next week. Then the following week, I believe, is a skip week, and then that we, is correct. Uh, back the week after that. We will be back for the Baxter Building in a month. One month, yeah. And this yes. Jeff says. We'll see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter
1: Building.